Thank you, Yossi, for the very pleasant introduction. <coughs> it's a privilege to be here and uh, to speak to uh, to your volunteers in the outplace, Chevra, uh, many of whom, of course, I know very, very well. And Baruch Hashem, we have a, a wonderful relationship. It's just good to see everyone. I listened to the tapes from the last presentation, uh, Dr. Tia, Trisha Tia, and Rabbi Milstein, and frankly, they were phenomenal. They were just, uh, I wish I was here that night, but it was terrific. And um, you may wonder why we're doing this again. The truth is, this subject is really a course. It's not just a, a presentation, you know, let's whet your appetite a little bit. You know, everything we know about sexual abuse, let's just mention it. It's a course. It's a, it's a long-term training experience to understand this has taken us years and years and we're still learning constantly and making lots of mistakes on the way trying to understand a very very difficult difficult sugya i you know as i listened to those tapes i was listening for perhaps what was left out and there's loads and loads of stuff left out but in particular and, and no, no i you know they did a wonderful job um but it's impossible to cover this whole subject properly. You can't just do that in a speech. You need to really train and talk and keep talking. It whets your appetite. So I'm going to try and fill in some of the blanks tonight, and it still won't be done. And we'll still leave many more questions. And uh, perhaps for future presentations, we can talk again about this. On a personal level, I backed into the area of sexual abuse, didn't know much about it, as a therapist, a clinician did the regular trainings that most clinicians do, and here and there you come into a case and you get a little supervision about it. Um, over the years, as I worked more and more with the at-risk, the off-the-derrick kids, it became, became clearer and clearer to me uh, that we're dealing with a tremendous amount of sexual abuse in the community. And so we started studying it more and trying to understand more what's happening. So it wasn't that, you know, I sort of woke up one morning, let me go and train in this area. Although there were times in my career when I felt perhaps this is all I could do all day. There's just so much of it, I could actually do this all day long and not have to do anything else. The second area that I backed into it was through uh, the couple's work I do. Um, probably today about half and half, half the work I do is Sean Bice work and the other half is sort of struggling, anything related to struggling teens. And um, in that work, I discovered there was a very high incidence also of couples struggling in their marriages. And when we dug a little deeper and people felt a little safer to talk about their issues and their struggles, what emerged time and time again was abuse and that one or, more, one or both of them were suffer, suffering from molestation and abuse. So when you work in the community, you do this kind of work, you're going to run into this, and you've just got to be aware and understand what it is you're dealing with and have a sense of how to approach it. Although, you know, I wish we had more and more therapists we could refer to who felt comfortable working in this area. There are more people coming online, but it just takes years of experience to understand this well. It's not something you go take a quick course and now you're a big expert. It takes years of supervision and training until you really get good at this stuff. It's so difficult. In the clinical work, some of the research we did early on when I started working with at-risk teens, we had run a few conferences through Nefesh and we'd done some research. 
and I started interviewing kids. We, we'd pulled together, to try and understand the uh, struggling teens, we pulled together a list over a number of conferences of risk factors that we identified to see if we could sort of put our finger on in elementary school age, like who's likely to be at risk, who might go off, who can we reach, who can we do early intervention with. And we identified some list of about 27 risk factors. Um, and, the, and the theory was, and it's pretty, it holds pretty true to this day because we've tried it out enough times, that um, any of the kids that we were working with or we identified in schools who had two or more of these risk factors seemed to have a better than 50% chance of going off the derech by the time they were in ninth grade. And we have a list, and we developed a, uh, some research to try and test this, see if it was true. Amongst the risk factors was sexual abuse. And I want to tell you just a, a very painful thing that emerged. This is some years ago, and I have repeated this time and time again, and it keeps ringing true. Now I understand there are others that have joined me in this. We had a list of these risk factors. If you can imagine a sheet with 27 risk factors down the page, and then across the page we'd have um, primary, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And each grade was divided into two columns – experienced, and then when they got some response or reaction to them. And then we had all the risk factors downsides. For example, you might have divorced. Parents were divorced. So they go along the line and say, well, which grade were you in when your parents were divorced? So they check like third grade. That's when we experienced it. Which grade were you in when someone came and talked to you about the issues you were struggling with around the divorce. When you were a professional, a therapist, a counselor, someone sat you down and started working with you about your feelings around this issue. And then they would go further down. For example, they might check off sixth grade. They had some sort of reaction, some response to help them with their issues. So there was experiencing it, and then someone responded to it. And we went through the, down this list of risk factors with struggling teens who were already going off to see what kind of risk factors they had and what kind of treatment they got. Simple little piece of research. I personally, over a period of years, interviewed a few hundred kids to see what they would do directly, talk to them, and, and filled in this list. And I went down the risk of what these risk factors were to see what they would say. Two very painful things emerged from this research. The first thing that, that emerged, that in itself was just, in a way, devastating, was the disparity between when they experienced whatever the issues were, whether, you know, they had ADD. Well, they had ADD all their life, so they, they, they put it primary. They experienced it because they always had ADD. When was it first diagnosed and someone started treating you with it? They might fill in sixth grade or seventh grade. That's the disparity. And we, we understood that when you went down these risk factors, the average disparity when you add up all the kids together was six and a half years between when they identified they had the problem till anyone actually got involved and started helping them. Now, if you imagine the elementary school years from basically when they start school at 5 till they're about 13, 12, 13, 14, that range, around 13, a disparity of six and a half years is more or less half their life. It's like a person who has some serious trauma at 25 in their life and no one actually helps them with it till they're 50. And meanwhile, they're carrying that baggage. And meanwhile, we expect these kids to go to school and they should just study well and they should comply. They should have an open mind to be able to learn and do everything they're meant to do. Of course, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. That was painful enough. But then we discovered something else, which was really extraordinary. 
that 8 out of 10, 80% of all the kids that we talked to who were off the derech, when they went down the list with things like, you know, learning disabilities and ADD or ODD or their parents were divorced or they were in foster care, all the different things that go down the list, when it came to sexual abuse, 8 out of 10 acknowledged they'd been abused. 80% turns out. And it was shocking to us when we first got this figure. As I spoke about this publicly, there was tremendous denial and a lot of criticism of what's my agenda here in the early days doing this. Um, so much so that people actually, you know, called me up or wrote me letters and were convinced I had some sort of agenda. Perhaps I, my practice wasn't so busy and I'm looking for clients. It wasn't really clear, but everyone thought, uh, people actually thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe he's obviously abused himself and that's his thing, you know. Um, I had a daughter who was off the derech, my eldest daughter, many years ago, and some people called me and said, well, maybe he abused his daughter, and now he's trying to, you know, you can imagine what we went through in the early days with this figure, 80%. And, of course, there was tremendous, tremendous anger in the community. What are you saying? First of all, what I was not saying is that 80% of children are abused, which was the first distortion of what I said. It's just not true. What I said was clearly that 80% of kids who went off the derech had experienced abuse. And, and when you think about it, it's a devastating figure. Since then, other institutions and other independent research has come in pretty much with the same kind of figures. And, uh, you know, we're working with, uh, when we're working with this population, you have to suddenly become an expert in understanding at least what it is. Because if you're working with struggling teens, there's an 8 out of 10 chance or an 80% chance you're working with someone who's been abused. And if you don't understand the first thing about abuse, or even if you do understand the first thing, forgive me, if you don't understand the fifth thing, if you don't understand some, some, some sort of shlemus in this sugya, even if you're not going to treat it, it's not about treatment. It's about relationship and connection and understanding and empathy and compassion. But if you don't have that stuff because you don't get inside the kid, because you don't feel the kid, you don't understand what it is they're probably experiencing, if you don't get into that piece, then the kids know it and they'll never connect with you. And so they drift off and they drift their own ways. And uh, I think when I listened to the tapes, and and again, I want to repeat, they were marvelous. Trish did a wonderful diagnostic piece of going through all the criteria and uh, what you expect to happen to them. She went through PTSD, she did a lot of good stuff. And Rabbi Milstein was phenomenal in some of his spiritual chizuk that he offers to us, and we need to know and offer to these kids. But I think the piece I want to do is I hope I want to take you a little bit into the experience of what it feels like, who they are, and what they go through. Because if we don't get to that piece of compassion, we don't get to the kids. And they know it, by the way. They know it darn well. And you don't connect with them, and you wonder why. You wonder what that is, that you're not reaching them. And you're not reaching because you never got the right issue. You never dealt with what's really going on. I want to say something else. You know, I speak about this subject when I'm invited to, you know, around the world. Not everyone wants to hear about it, but for those who do, I'm ready to speak. Typically, I just want to make an observation that in almost every audience that I've ever spoken in, there's always those people who kind of poo-poo this whole thing about sexual abuse. And they come after us with kashas. What are you saying? You do this, or you have that kind of experience. They pick out a detail, usually, from the speech. That's one way. And say, I don't believe that's true. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, like, fit. Or the whole thing doesn't fit. You know, 
I know someone, you know, this is a typical thing. I know someone who was abused and they're, they're just talking not true and they're married, they've got a nice family, they're wonderful people. What I realized was that typically in every audience I'm speaking to, there's people who've actually been abused. It's impossible not to. Statistically, it just makes sense. There are going to be people in every audience. When I do this, in like a rabbinic or chinuch audience, there's always people there have been abused. Always, always, always. And those are usually the people most vociferous about rejecting the things I'm saying. And then it dawned on me one day why. So I marked him. Now, I'm really doing this because of the tape. I want to say this piece more than because of this. I'm, I'm aware people are going to listen to this. But it's very interesting. People get very upset about it, and they come up and they start like questioning the whole thesis and the whole thing. It sounds ridiculous. You're overblowing it. What happens is there's an issue called resilience, and we don't understand resilience. If we did, if I knew resilience, I'd be a millionaire, a multimillionaire. If I could understand how to create resilience in a child so you could go ahead, unfortunately, and be sexually abused and go off in life as if nothing happened, I'd probably be one of the wealthy people in the world if I could work out how to do that. The trouble is we don't know. That's the problem. But the fact is that a very large proportion, some say it's 50-50, some say, some of the research, a lot of, by the way, there's broad spectrum research here. It's very hard to nail it down to get exact research. But they say 50-50, that 50% of all people who are abused appear to go on with life almost as if nothing happened. They can get married, they have families, they have children, they do not abuse anyone else, and they put it in the past. It's a little bit waters off, water off the duck's back, and they move on, and they look at it as, oh, that stupid thing, what are they doing? The crazy guy, oh, touch me there, what is, what's he thinking? And they seem to go on with life and put it behind them. And what they don't understand, and on the contrary, they're very, very destructive, those people, can be, excuse me, I want to be precise, not are, can be, because they don't realize that there's people who experience the exact same thing they did, whose lives are utterly devastated and will be permanently damaged. They form a new course in life, and they will never be the person they were ever again. They can still be happy, they can still be fulfilled, and on the contrary, they may become spectacular therapists one day. Who knows? But it's a different course. It's a life-altering experience forever for those group. And for most of them, it's going to be a horrendous struggle and fight to regain yourself, to regain a dignity and a sense of self and purpose and a relationship with God and all sorts of stuff, to get that back is a horrendous uphill battle. And for the other group, it's like, hey, come on, look, put it behind you, what are you... We don't know. But resilience is a huge issue. And so whenever we talk about this, we need to be aware when you discuss it with colleagues, co-workers, other volunteers, it's very, very common that we get this kind of reaction of like, I don't know, I think people are overblowing a third drush on this subject. Like, hello, you know, what do we need this for? And we need to really realize that, that for that, that it's true. For half the group, they don't seem to be affected. So there's sort of an underlying, you know, not denial, it's a resistance to really embracing this, which often comes from those very people who abuse themselves. Such a paradox, but that's a fact. Resilience is a reality. We don't know why. I wish we could put our finger on it. There's lots of speculation and theory. There's a whole subject in itself, how to create resilience, as if you can. You know, I've heard from sort of masters in the field who claim that even with the best programs and the best things and all the best, you know, instruction and discussions, it goes ahead, it happens. 
and they get abused yet again. So we don't understand resilience, but it's important to deal with that part of Janan, to understand when we work in the field or we're helping people and families, you can often have have a parent in a family where a child was abused and the parent was abused, never told anyone about it. They were abused themselves, never did anything ever again, the whole lives, and they put it behind them. Now their kid gets abused, and guess what happens? The emotional abuse of that parent to their child is almost like a subtle unconscious abuse because their, their attitude towards their own kid is get over it, grow up, like shrug it off, be big, what's the matter with you? Without ever saying, I did, which they're kind of afraid to say, and how do we know this? Because I see it when it happens in a family system. In a gentle and polite and careful way, I ask those questions and it almost always comes out. That's what's going on. So it's a complex issue and the issue of resilience particularly, I wish we understood it better, but these are all the realities we deal with when we're dealing in this very, very difficult parsha. I have another pet peeve I want to start with. We're gonna, I don't usually do this, but I want to start with something kind of technical. That was the introduction. Okay, now I want to tell you where I start. I want to start with a little bit of a pet peeve, but it's, it's, I think, also an important issue for us all to address. Terminology. Terminology. There's the language used about this subject. There are three main usages or language usages. We talk about molestation, we talk about sexual abuse, and we talk about pedophilia or pedophiles. And these words are used somewhat interchangeably when we talk about this subject, and I want to clarify what they mean once and for all, because actually it's extremely confusing. Most people don't really know the difference between them all, and there is a massive difference. And if we don't get this difference, then we mistakenly misunderstand and look in the wrong place and protect the wrong people in the wrong way and accuse some of the wrong people in a very mean way. And we need to understand this. Molestation and sexual abuse, by the way, are pretty much interchangeable. Those two terms pretty much refer to molestation is sexual abuse. That's what it is. It's a word that, it's a, a word that describes sexual abuse. Pedophilia is something else. I want to read to you the DSM-4 description of what is pedophilia. So it says like this, pedophilia is specified as a, a form of paraphilia. Paraphilia is any, um, any sexual behavior that's outside the realm of normal, that could hurt someone else, is a paraphilia. In which a person either has acted on intense sexual urges towards children or experiences recurrent sexual urges towards and fantasizes about children that causes distress or interpersonal difficulty to that person. The disorder is common among people who commit child sexual abuse. That's true. When you look at the diagnosis of pedophilia, the criteria in DSM, says the following, and I'm going to highlight why I'm bringing this up in a moment, because I just want to get this out of the way. It says like this, over a period of at least six months, recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies, sexual urges or behaviors involving sexual activity with a prepubescent child or children, generally aged 13 years or younger. That's a little bit loose there, generally aged, they're covering themselves because they're not sure, and it's some behavior over a period of six months with a prepubescent, a child before puberty. The, B, the person has acted on these sexual urges or the sexual urges or fantasies caused marked distress or impersonal difficulty. I mean to say he can be a pedophile without actually ever touching a child, ever, according to DSM. And C, the, this is the crucial piece, the person is at least age 16 years and at least 
five years older than the child or children in the first criteria. This is crucial. I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree, you know, in our community whether this is precise. Most of this stuff is somewhat imprecise in our community. It needs a little bit of tweaking to get it right because we have different cultural norms. But look at that third criteria. The child, the person, the pedophile is at least age 16 years and at least five years older than the child or children in criterion A. Why is this crucial? I'll tell you why it's crucial. In the last, I would say over the last year, finally, in our media, our press, whether it's the Ated or Modia or, or Mishpacha, they've started talking. People have written articles, and finally, I'm glad I didn't do it, but I'm glad it's been done, because it's a hard thing to do, and, and, and I give credit to those who've tried to do it, and to start getting you know, the community thinking about this and us being more honest and getting out of this pit of denial and facing the truth, although we have a long way to go, let's be real. We all know that. I mean, everyone in this room knows that we have a long, long way to go. But there's some movement. I've asked a number of people, though, when you read those articles, if you read it, you're a layman, you're a machanech, a machaneches, and you read those articles, close your eyes for a minute and ask yourself, what's the profile you now have in your head of the molester? This person who's molesting, who's doing sexual abuse, what's the picture you have of that person? And I asked a number of people after they read those articles. In fact, everyone who said to me, German, look, I read this article. What do you think of this article? So right away I just said, okay, so before we discuss it, tell me something. You read the, yes, read the article. What do you think in your head is the picture you now have, having read that article, of who's molesting? Almost everybody said two things. A Rebbe or some dirty old man in a raincoat, some old guy out there exposing and trying to touch people, some man, an older man, probably my age group, or a Rebbe. That's the picture most people had. The reality about almost, when I say almost all, the vast majority of molestation that goes on in our community is not anywhere near anything that could fit into this definition of pedophilia, it's actually kids hurting other kids. The vast majority of all molestation and sexual abuse that we ever deal with, that's the, the vast majority, the overwhelming cases, start with kids who hurt other kids, not pedophiles, adults, hurting children. That is a heinous crime, pedophilia. And there are pedophiles. We all know that. There are rebbers, unfortunately, and there are adults. And there's a lot of other people doing this stuff, and they shouldn't be doing it. And I don't know the incidents of it. But I can tell you, I discuss with my colleagues, clinicians, those that we work in the community, and mo almost all of us know that the vast majority of cases we get of kids being abused is other kids. The, the initial abuse is kids hurting other kids. That's not pedophilia. And it doesn't qualify or fit this picture whatsoever. And so when we have this false illusion that we allow in the lay press and the public that it's about pedophiles, we're all looking in the wrong place. And we protect the wrong people because we're not looking in the right place for what's actually happening. If we assume it's the Rebbe or the, old man in the, the dirty old man in the raincoat, we got the wrong people. That's true. That is happening. And there should be work done in that. But that's not the vast majority of what we're looking at. That's not where it starts, and that's not how it happens. And what I want to talk about is what really does happen and how it, how it happens to kids so that we can really understand it and perhaps get them the proper protection they need. But this false image is not helping us. It's a distraction 
I guess, at worst, or at best, it's a distraction, and at worst, it, it's misleading, and it takes us into the wrong place completely. That's not in any way, I'm not in any way diminishing how, what a heinous crime pedophilia is. It's a disaster for someone's life when they're affected by a pedophile. Total disaster. But that's not the vast majority of what we see, and we're going to talk about, or at least I'm going to talk about tonight, the majority of what we actually see in the community. Ch- sexual child abuse. What is sexual child abuse? So let me read this also from DSM. It's a form of child abuse in which a child is abused for the sexual gratification of an old adult or older person, primarily, that's my word, I add that in, primarily for the sexual gratification of an adult or older adolescent. In addition to direct sexual contact, Child sexual abuse also occurs, and I'd like to add in also can occur. I'd like to add that word can because I don't think it's absolute guarantee that it will, but it can occur, and perhaps maybe the word is often or often will occur. When an adult, and again my brackets, or any other person who possesses or whom the victim perceives as possessing a power or control over the victim, close brackets, indecently exposes their genitalia to a child, asks or pressures a child to engage in sexual activities, displays pornography to a child, or uses a child to produce child pornography. You see, why is that that important? Let's discuss this just for a few minutes. Most lay people, if you discuss sexual abuse, and this is very crucial also in the world of Chinuch, when you talk about sexual abuse, people think of a sexual act like two consenting adults, married people might do. You know, like uh, uh, intercourse. They'll think of a sexual act, a formal sexual act. In reality, the spectrum of acts or behaviors that can cause all the reaction that we expect in of a rape victim, of a child who was abused, fully sexually abused, in the same way that a married couple would be with each other. That kind of reaction can occur from a simple touch, can, not will, I want to be very clear, can occur from a simple touch, a simple exposure. What really happens to a child, unfortunately, again, what can happen to a child, and let's bear in mind that 50% there's resilience. But of the 50% that get hurt, a simple exposure to a prepubescent child can wreck their life permanently till they get treatment. Well, actually, it'll be permanent in terms of it'll take them in a whole new direction forever, for the rest of their life. They've just gone on a new journey, and it's going to change their life forever. Can they live a functional, healthy life? Of course they can. And if we get them into treatment and help them and understand them and eventually do that work with them, a person can grow to embrace it and move in whatever direction they need to with their life, despite the fact they've been abused. It's doable, possible, and we do it all the time. It's not guaranteed, by the way. I mean, there, there's no question to me that there are some people who are abused who will walk around never, ever quite the same or able to function in a healthy way fully, ever. Sometimes it just stays, whether that's the fault of us in the mental health community that we don't know how to treat it, or the, just the nature of the abuse to that particular neshama is not clear to me which it is. But the fact is, some people will be forever abused. And you need to understand, it can be a simple exposure. And I'll tell you why. Pre-pub- prepubescent child, in our community, 
has little or no, expo- no exposure whatsoever to anything sexual. In fact, you know, even if I, in our community, if I would go into a school, a high school or a seminary, and I would give a drasha about struggling kids and use the phrase sexual abuse, I'll be in trouble. You can't even say the word freely and easily. So the exposure of a young child to anything sexual is something that's limited, it's, it's diminished as much as possible, we don't talk about it. What happens to a child who, pre-puberty, has been, the way I think of it is that the sexual pathways within them have been aroused or opened or awakened with absolutely nowhere to go with it, nothing to do with it, other than feel ashamed about it. What exactly is that child going to do with that information? And a simple exposure, a pornographic picture, could, a simple one-time exposure to a pornographic picture, could wreck a child's life permanently. And we don't realize that. A one-time touch. I've had countless kids I've worked with who've told me the touch wasn't even under their clothing. But they sensed that the person that touched them was interested in their private parts. Internally, unbeknown to them, because we process this years later and help them come to terms with it, but internally what's happened now is that now they're aware they've got private parts which are apparently are interesting to someone else. They have a certain value to them. I'll tell you something else that's incredible. There's a statistic. This come, I saw this online the Kansas state government, you know, there are a lot of different, you know, people do research in this. I happen to see this one. They came up with this thing, having researched all their learning disabled kids in the state of Kansas over a 10-year period, discovered that 90%, 9 of all children diagnosed with learning disabilities were molested. 90%. It's an incredible statistic. That means these kids were so vulnerable to begin with and somehow were open to this thing happening to them and then this thing happens and their lives are wrecked one time a one time exposure could ruin someone's life we, we have to get out of the mentality of thinking of some big miser happening of some constant not obviously someone who's constantly abused over a long period of time in likelihood it makes, so it makes sense that they're going to be devastated by this and hurt by this but the denial in the community that, hey, he just put his hand there one time. You know, what did he do already? You know, that wasn't such a big deal. And especially when the thing that was done could be something that's viewed as normative in a normal, healthy relationship. So that wasn't like abusive. See, we make this mistake of thinking sexual abuse. That almost always people who are not educated in this are looking for an act that is an abusive act. And that's not what sexual abuse is. I'll tell you exactly what sexual abuse is. It's the impact on a child's sexual development forever. That's the abuse. For those that are hurt by this, the change in their life, that permanent change in their life, and again, until treatment, the the struggle and shame and fear and desire for sexuality that wrecks their life, this thing will continue and can easily occur from one simple happening. Why? Because the sexual pathways have been open inside this person 
and now they view them as a sec- they view themselves as a sexual being with absolutely nothing to do with it, nowhere to go with it, no way to express it, and stuck with these feelings. And then they're expected to go through our school system where we're dashing about Kedusha, about Tahara, about Sneas, about, you know, a relationship with the Rabboni Shalom. And this kid's worrying all day, all he can think about is sex. So the abuse is the impact upon, and it can be this permanent impact upon their sexual development, not the specific act that was done. An abusive act is an abusive act. But a non-abusive act, that means just an exposure to a picture, which is like it's not an abusive act in and of itself. But the abuse is the devastation to a person's life that we now have to work out how on earth to change them and heal them later on when the, the, the core of their being has been affected so deep down because now they view themselves as a sexual being, as a sexual person. That's sexual abuse. It's not, we have to move away from the thought that it's the pu'ula, the action, it's the impact on their life that's the abuse. Of course, it goes without saying, if that particular pula was abusive, then it has a double whammy, unfortunately. So, having said that, what are the types of sexual abuse? So, I just, a few, just to list them, but just to understand how it can be something so apparently benign, as opposed to something so horrendous. Incest is horrendous. An act of incest between family members is horrendous form of sexual abuse. And that has the abusive quality, and sometimes it doesn't have the abuse. It's, con- it's consensual. Brothers and sisters acting together without fear, without anger, without power or control. So is that abuse or not? Of course it's abusive. It wrecks the whole relationship towards sexuality. Kalvachoyme, if it's a forced abuse where a parent forces an act onto a child. Non-consensual, forced physical sexual behavior, such as rape or sexual abuse, sexual assault, is obviously sexual abuse. Sexual kissing, fondling, exposure of genitalia and voyeurism. An act which the child perceives as sexual when they shouldn't, when the person doing this is again doing it primarily for their own gratification. And they're in some way, intimidating, forcing, coercing, pushing this child into this behavior. Of course, once it's happened, you have to realize that piece about forcing them into it is not necessarily going to be there anymore because now they're on their own journey of how to deal with this problem. And they will actually, I'm going to speak about it a little later, may well actually set themselves up for this happening again and again, which many, many times over will only get them blamed when they get caught, which compounds the abuse that began and it just becomes devastating. Exposing a child to pornography. Just the simple exposure. I cannot tell you the numbers of cases I've seen where a child saw pornography and now in their brain they got this jerk of that picture which will drive them to want to see more. It'll drive them to explore their own sexuality until you sit a kid like that and try and learn with him, Bavakama, or go and teach her about Hilchasnias and all that's in their head is this picture of pornography and they're, they're chutz l'tchum, they're out of the sugya. They can't relate to this whole sugya and feel blemished and cursed and don't want anything to do with it. Listen to this one. Saying sexually suggested... By the way, all these things I'm giving you here are all things that come out of people I worked with. You know, these are like I thought through and these are things that I've actually worked with. Saying sexually suggestive statements towards a child. Simply saying something sexually suggestive could 
traumatize a child because again once you get the concept of its opening sexual pathways in the head of a child where those pathways don't belong you know ideally a young couple in our world the greatest nachas I, I've given you know chosen schmoozen occasionally and I certainly speak to young couples many times ideally a young couple approach the whole sexual intimate relationship. They find out before they get married what they need to know, and they approach it But Tamimas. And I can tell you, I have met countless people who were fortunate enough to get through this world and approach the intimate and physical relationship with utter Tamimas and openness and can talk about it and relate to it with each other with total, utter Tamimas in such a beautiful fashion, which is the ideal of what we're trying to produce. For kids who've had their sexual pathways opened, this is gone. This is gone. So the abuse is ongoing as they view themselves as sexual people. And the simple suggestion of something sexual to a child could open up, why is this person interested in me? Oh, I'm a sexual object. Internally and unconsciously, they've now shifted in life into a place where there is no room for them to be. There's no outlet, there's no possibility of doing anything with those feelings other than suffer and feel stigmatized and shut out of the world. And the last one, the use of a position of trust to compel otherwise unwanted sexual activity without physical force. Coercion, you know, forcing someone. the, The heinous stories I've heard over years... And uh, this is particularly, of course, Nagaya in the uh, to the uh, Rebbe situation, where I had one case, I've had more than one case of um, where a Rebbe was doing to his Talmidim Nishikas Piu. He showed him the pasuk in the Torah where uh, Rabbeinu Shalom gives Nishikas Piu, Nishikas Peir to Moshe Rabbeinu. And this is, and, and the Rebbe distorted this information to explain to his Talmidim, this is a form of smicha. This is how you pass on smicha, and I'm going to pass on to you. This, this use of a power, of a position of power and trust to ruin someone's life is particularly heinous. And again, some people look at it as like, oh, the guy's a jerk. Like, what's with him? He's just like, and others are ruined forever by having been approached and now opened up to as a sexual person, as a sexual being, again, with nowhere to go and nothing to do with it. It's utterly devastating. We're going to use the word now. So pedophilia, let's understand, a pedophile is a person whose primary sexual interest is to young children. He may also be able to maintain a heterosexual relationship, sexual relationship, adult heterosexual relationship, may well have it, but the primary interest is this interest in young children that doesn't seem to go away. That's the vast majority of our cases are not like that. And it's so important that we understand that and realize where is this stuff starting, how does it happen, where does it happen. Okay, so I'm going to use the word molestation now to talk about this sugi of sexual abuse, and it's the sugi that we deal with most of all. Let's do differences in boys and girls to begin with. What's the differences in boys and girls? Okay, so first of all, in the case of boys, the, I'm talking now from the perspective of those boys who were molested and were hurt by it, were ruined by it. Most of the boys will report that the, uh, the molestation happened to them extremely early in life. By the way, most of them don't report anything at all. 
You know, we all know that, but we'll come to that later on. How do we get the information and, and how do we even talk to them about it to discover what's going on? Because they, they'll never tell. No one's going to come and tell you about it, right? Because they're so shamed about it. Most of the boys are molested outside the house. It's not at home the first time, most, although there are cases where um, one of the boys was already molested, an older brother, outside the house at school, and he may well experiment with his younger brothers at home. That's not uncommon. Although most, the first time abuse for most of the boys is going to be out of the house, and it's probably going to be in school or yeshiva, where the first time it happens. And it's going to happen at a very, very young age. I'm going to tell you some stuff later on that's so startling and painful about how young this can happen. It's quite shocking. But it's going to happen at a very, very young age. Most girls are molested, usually the first time molestation with most is between the age of somewhere around 9 to 13. Some people are telling me that's expanding today, 8 to 14, I don't know, or 8 to 12, excuse me, it's getting year earlier. So we, we can go with the 8 to 12, it's probably more accurate. But it's much older. Boys, little boys have something to touch and molest conceptually more than little girls do when they're younger. And uh, boys tend to get molested from primary and on. Once they go to school, primary, um, I, I cannot tell you the numbers. I would guess that most of the kids who have been chronically molested over the years and all the different issues and struggles they eventually end up with, uh, I would say probably most of them would have reported primary, first grade as where it first time ever happened to them, when they're most vulnerable, and it's done by older boys in school. It's not done by a Rebbe. Not by, done by a teacher. It's done by boys themselves, who they themselves were molested. In fact, when you get an outbreak in a school system, you can almost like it's incredibly painful. But you can make a tree of who is doing what to whom, and then who was done. You know, it's like a tree when it just comes down, and you can see a tremendous pattern and breadth to how many kids were molested, coming down from an eighth grader to maybe a sixth grader or a fourth graders and down to primary. But primary is where most kids are molested, which makes it very difficult to do the shmirah at home because there probably isn't the shmirah, the proper shmirah we need to do at home. Whereas most girls are, out, uh, are done in the home the first time. The vast majority of girls, the, the statistics appear to be, again, this is, by the way, this is not hard research. I don't know of any hard research. If someone knows of it, please tell me about it. This is the kind of research where, you know, I go through my files and then discuss it with various colleagues, and they go through their files, and we kind of reach a consensus where we're all, we, we feel we're pretty much all saying the same thing. And what we're looking at with most girls is the initial sexual abuse is going to be by an older brother, typically between the ages of about 15 and 19. So a girl's going to be played with between the age of, let's say, 8 and 12, when she's sort of, you know, round puberty kind of age, and she's beginning to develop, but she's naive enough not to know how to protect herself, and she'll be molested typically at home by an older brother between the age of 15 and 19, and it's opportunistic. It's not, you know, this guy's not a pedophile. You know, and he's not, probably not going to become a pedophile. And he's probably going to go through his own agony. And he's probably himself, you know, who knows, was touched or molested somewhere else. Who knows? And he's going to take the opportunity of seeing this little sister coming out of the shower or, or break into the shower or go into the bedroom, and he's going to touch her. And we're going to see why. What does he get out of it? Because most of them in these cases are not going to rape that little girl, thank God. That's not what's going to happen. They're going to touch her, feel her, 
or and look, I'm going to be open with the language here because I'm not sure there's any other way to do this, and I'm, I'm assuming a mature audience. Am I, am I correct? That's the, the only way I can do this. But most of them are going to arouse themselves or masturbate themselves on this other child or take that information and masturbate with that information afterwards or directly on the body or afterwards. Probably most of what I've dealt with was where they took a little girl and they aroused themselves directly on the body of the girl, thinking she was this little girl was asleep. And most of the little girls who report this, these are the typical ones I get when they're young married and they freeze after they're married. You know, they have two or three kids and then suddenly they decide their husband's some sex fiend, some monster who has one interest in this world, sex, and nothing else at all. And they, you know, just not, and they drag him into therapy and because he, the guy's not sensitive to me, he's not warm to me, he's just interested in sex. And as you begin to break down the case, what you discover is a woman who's kind of got herself into the, in, uh, you know, legitimized herself by getting married, forcing herself to be intimate, even though she doesn't like it at all not interested whatsoever, and in hindsight you look back and discover that her interest was only to get pregnant. That's all she was interested in, because she needs the carriage, and she needs a baby or two to just sort of legitimize herself in the Jewish world, otherwise you feel like a loser. And that's never what she feels like. So she will force herself into an intimate relationship, and her husband the entire time is typically frozen out, feeling there's no bonding, there's no intimacy, she's like a log. Like, what is this? And it's just a horrible, painful experience. And he's frustrated and angry about it. She might even discover him with a magazine or with a video or doing something. And then that's it. You see, he's the sex maniac. This typical scenario, and it's a very, very common scenario. I'm sure almost all therapists in the firm world deal with this kind of case. Typically, if the questions are asked gently and they're asked well enough, what will emerge is almost always a scenario of a woman who was molested as a child and she just to get she just shoved it away or thought she did in order she could get sort of married and out there in the world and then when she's got these two or three kids then it just comes back she doesn't need that protection she's got herself into the world she's legitimate she's got a few babies and then all those feelings start emerging and she ices out her husband and then sees him as this sort of sexual predator which is just a transference from what happened back there complex story once you get this story by the way it's not so complex to heal Interestingly enough, actually it's freeing and it's so incredible to see the work emerge and that's relatively an easy one to deal with. Nevertheless, it starts with that molestation where she was molested somewhere between the age of 8 and 12 for the first time and the molester, who was the brother, in most cases, or a young uncle sometimes, very occasionally a father, I've had some of those, very occasionally, mostly it's the older brother, and if you look in the family, when you get a kid like this acting out, and you ask politely and gently and respectfully, and you discover there's an older brother who's between the age of 15 and 19, who's in some yeshiva somewhere, struggling and having a hard time in his life, and sort of pre-off the derech. You know, he's still dressing right, and he's still basically in yeshiva, but he's not achieving, and he's not doing anything, and his life is really, you know, like bothering everyone. Typically, that's the guy. That's the one. That he's, and he's feeling remorseful, he's feeling full of shame, he doesn't know what to do with himself, he kind of knows it's happened, and he desires to do it more. It's all a pro. he doesn't want to go home for Shabbos, and then when he does go home for Shabbos, he ends up touching her again because he can't control himself. This kind of scenario is typical with girls at the beginning of their unfortunate journey in molestation. What's the impact? Now remember the issue of resilience. Even with these cases... 
it's a 50-50 resilience. And some of them go through this, and they get touched, and they look at it as old Mysakoff, as like a stupid thing, and they go on with life. Others, a little girl will lie there in bed, pretending to be asleep because she's A, frozen with fear, because she doesn't know what happens, and she may have seen her brother's you know, private parts and is frightened about what she sees. At the same time, she's fascinated in an awesome, scary kind of way, and she lies there pretending to be asleep, quite well aware that she's being sexualized. And she will allow it to happen again, and we're going to talk about why the repetition occurs and what that's about. And this is all crucial if you ever, ever which we all do, end up working with someone or connecting with someone, we've got to get inside their feelings and head, or we don't... I'm not talking about clinical treatment. That's just everything. That's up to clinicians. I'm talking about volunteers and mentors and relating to and connecting. You're not going to talk about it necessarily. But they will know if you can feel them. They will know, I assure you. Whether you are in their sugya, they know. And I have to tell you something. You know, I've talked to hundreds of people Everyone has a different experience. You know, they hate people, by the way. Abused people hate the notion of professionals coming like, I know about sexual abuse. Let me tell you, this is probably the most nauseating thing after the abuse itself. It's the next worst thing that ever happens to someone who's abused. The next worst thing is this idea that they get some well-meaning, I'd like to say well-meaning professional who thinks they've done a course or they've you know, learned to know something about it. My approach which is quite honest, and uh, by the way, when I do this approach, clinically, it's true. I, uh, for others, it may not be true. I tell my clients, there's no way I can know your experience unless you tell me. I can't understand you. I mean, I know the sugya a little bit, but I can't know what you went through unless you feel safe enough to share it with me. And so we start a journey of discovery together. The worst thing is, yeah, yeah, let me tell you, you know, I'll tell you my treatment model. You know, people are right out of therapy when that happens. Well, the same thing with mentoring. When you're mentoring someone or you're trying to, you know, some, and this is, I presume, this is our group here. We're all mentors here. Someone who's been abused will know their antenna are up whether you can embrace them or not. You can get what they're about. They'll know. And they'll know whether you're willing to have that compassion for them or whether you're going to immediately start moving into, you know, get over it kind of approach like it happens it happens to a lot of people you know it's very unfortunate but you know we got to move on you got to stay in school you got to you know you got to do nothing you got to be you that's what you got to do and they we've got to reach out with compassion and, and see if we can get inside what is their experience what do they feel what's the impact again by the way this is a course I mean, I'm just giving Roshi Prokim, you know, to whet the appetite here. This is a, this is a course. You know, we, each one of these things I've talked about, we could spend a whole night going into very deep. We've done this, by the way. I mean, the Outplace guys know we've sat and we've done this again and again and again. And each time we do it, I think everyone, am I correct? The, the experience every time is like, you can't believe there's going to be another piece you're going to get you just they're nodding here for the tape i just want to acknowledge the guys are nodding you know it, it's a fact by the way i want to tell you something i go to workshops. you know clinicians we professionals have to go to workshops we need ceu so we got to go i go to a lot of workshops and a lot of these workshops i go to i must tell you i find you know it costs a lot of money first of all it's loss of income and then you got to go to a hotel somewhere and you got to train and it's a big problem and then you go and you find some guy, boring guy, going on, some world expert, and you feel, like, frustrated. I used to leave him very frustrated, thinking, like, what did I really learn here? What was this? Is this really, you know, worth it? One day, I was at a workshop in Washington, Washington, D.C., 
a two-day workshop. It cost me a lot of money and the traveling and the hotel. and the, It's really a very expensive experience. And, uh, and I was very deeply frustrated because this famous expert, I'm not going to say who it was, but a well-known famous person was darshaning about sexual abuse for two days and I was falling asleep most of the time listening to this great expert. On the way back in the car, the Rabbi Shalom helped me out. And since then, it's many years ago, since then, I'm a new man. And it's, I want to share it with you because I think it's so profound. On the way back in the car, the following thought occurred to me. Here's a world-famous expert who's darshaning about a subject that he knows very, very well. It was she in that case, actually. It was a woman. And I know 90% of this material. What happened to me is when I got home, I took a confidence into my practice that I never had before. It, it, it elevated me in an amazing and very humbling kind of way, but in an honest way, wow, I know 90% of this stuff. If you know 90% of the stuff I'm talking about today, tonight, that should be encouraging and helpful. It shouldn't be like, what a waste of time. You should say to yourself, my gosh, that's very important to me that I know this, and you should go and work with this information with a greater confidence than you did before you came here. That's what happened to me, and it happens all the time workshops. Then there's the 10% of golden nuggets that you go there and you hear a few pieces that you never heard before, and even one of those may, may save a life. One. And as far as I'm concerned, it's worth Kadai the whole thing for that one person, that one life that I might save was Kadai those two days. And I just want to share it with you that that's crucial when you go to trainings and workshops. If you find it's kind of boring and you know most of the material, well, Ashrecha, then go back into your work with a renewed chizuk and strength and confidence, and then appreciate the few nuggets you're going to get, because there's always going to be some, we've done this, we've discussed this. If I would number the times, we've sat down as a group and discussed this hundreds, am I correct or not? Probably hundreds of times. We've sat down, it's been hours, hundreds of times, literally, and each time there's like a little chiddush or something, and someone will tell me afterwards, you know what, I had a kid. And they'll call me up. And this kid, I think I reached that kid because of that little nugget. Guys, uh, for the uh, tape, people are grinning in the audience because they know this is true. Anyway, so let's, let's you know, take that in mind. It's a ton of material. You know, we could spend literally 100 hours doing this and we still wouldn't be done. Russia program, just the details. The impact. Let's look at the impact because we've got to get to the compassion, that level of feeling. Okay, with boys... It's very likely, none of this is guaranteed, none of this is like, you know, like black and white, you know, this is the way it is, but this is what's most likely. Boys are very likely that the abuse was associated with fear or some sort of violent act. It's extremely likely that that happened. Because when they're little kids, someone is going to use power or control to sort of coerce them into something. They'll dare some other kids to pull down the pants of this kid. They'll dare a group of kids to pull down his pants and touch his his, uh, private parts. There's some part of this act with boys typically can be associated with fear or violence. And that's the piece that we have to address when we start working with them, that they're, they're, you know, they themse- and they themselves will repeat with the same fear and violence because of it. But we need to understand that they're scared about this whole sugya. The whole thing is a frightening thing. They've, they're the ones most likely to be told these things like, if you dare tell anyone, I'm going to kill you. 
or I'm going to kill your parents. We're going to hurt you. And they really believe it. And they walk around with an association that's extremely difficult to treat later on in life that when you finally get to normal, healthy sexuality and you've got to now realize it's a beautiful thing in the right context. It's loving and beautiful and sensitive. And yet they've now got the association of fear or violence and trauma that was put into them early on that needs to be dealt with and taken away. Typically with girls, it's a nonviolent touch. The little girls who are touched by their brothers, most of them, and it's not the only ones, but I'm just giving you that as an example, is typically without violence. On the contrary, most of the girls who are abused at the beginning are pretending to be asleep. They're pretending not to notice. They close their eyes and just like freeze out, don't know what to do with themselves about the whole thing. And they will freeze. And again, this is just the beginning, the first time. You know, I'm not even addressing tonight what happens to them in their own sexual activity and behavior once they've been activated. There's all sorts of directions they're going to go in, in terms of repetition and experimentation with their own sexuality. But what happens almost across the board as a sort of conceptual idea is that they've their, their sexual pathways have been opened. And I tell you the facts. Once opened, they will never be closed. This is the facts about sexuality. I have kids who sit there crying in front of me when I work through this stuff. I'm talking about nice, you know, grown teenagers, strapping young people, healthy young people. And when we work through this sugya, what they're going to say to me is, uh, you know, I want it back. Can I have my innocence back? Can I close down those pathways? Teach me how to close it down. And I tell him, you can't. It's taken from you, and it's not going to be given back to you. Your, your destiny in life is now going to work out, what do I do now this trauma has happened to me? You are never going to shut it down. Once you open sexual pathways, you cannot close them up again. The person is now an active member of the sexual community, if you want, at an age in a circumstance where there's absolutely no use, positive or useful, for this experience. As many of the kids, they cry out to me, why did God do this to me? How could he let this happen to me? How could I have discovered sex when, or sexuality when there's absolutely no possible outlet that I'm not feeling bad and ashamed of myself and I'm not th- a threat and viewed as a threat to other people. What, why would this happen to me? With girls, it's a non-violent touch, typically. And that's, you see, the, the, the catastrophic impact when they get married later on and try to emerge into a healthy sexual relationship with a man where the touch that initiated their entrance, as it were, into the sexual world was a soft, non-violent touch, and hopefully the husband, who may not know anything whatsoever, may never have been told, enters into his relationship with her, having been taught soft, non-violent touch, be gentle, and guess what happens? She reacts traumatized to what he's done. Do you see how the abuse is not at all the act? It was soft, non-violent touch. And yet the abuse is the utter devastation to this poor woman having the opportunity to have a normal sexual relationship. That's why in these cases, all the ones I have... Yeah, thank you. Oh, you know what I have here? I have... Thank you. I got... You know, I'll take another one. David, I'll take Thank you. How'd you know? I'm getting hoarse. <clears throat> That's why the couples I work with, especially the ones that... Um, 
you know, I've been working with since they're teenagers, and I'm, I'm aware of it, uh, we talk about it beforehand. We talk very openly once they're engaged, and even before they're engaged, I talk, I talk to them about it and get them to reveal and share what happened to them because, uh, truth be told, these girls do not want to, once they've you know, learned to own and understand what's happened to them, the wisest thing for them is to be able to marry someone who they can say it to. This happened to me. And when we get married, it's going to take time for me to learn how to normalize myself. And it's always the best outcome if they can go before and find a guy who can understand that. Because he's going to be taught to do everything that actually is going to be traumatic to her nebuch and wreck her life again. It's just a nightmare. Typically... There are two basic responses globally to sexual abuse. And, and now I'm going to talk about you know, the reaction in the kids. The two responses are either going to be internalizing or externalizing. The internalizers will see things like depression, obviously. These are the lists. I think Trish had a list of these on, the, on her um, lecture. This includes things like just walking around with a morose attitude all the time closed down, shut down, you know, very, very disconnecting. The ones when you reach out to them as a mentor or as a parent or Rebbe, they shrink from you. I think the first case I ever had, ever, when I knew nothing about it and I had to get good supervision right away because I really hadn't learned much about it in school. You don't learn much about this in school. You know, it takes years to get this stuff. And a kid, typically I worked with, you know, I worked with young kids and uh, typically... When they left, you know, you might give a kid a pat on the back, like an encouraging, just a little pat on the back as they leave your office. It's not, you know, in those days, I, I thought it was kind of a nice little, you know, pat on the back. And this one kid at the end of the session, probably went nowhere the whole session, and he probably knew I hadn't the foggiest what I was talking about. And as he left, I went to give him the old pat on the back, and the kid, like, you know, moved his body to make sure my hand missed and shot out of there. And next week missed his appointment. In fact, he missed the next two appointments. And when I inquired in the school what happened, you know, there was all sorts of excuses why he missed. And eventually what emerged was he, he, that pat on the back, from his point of view, is how his abuse started. And, and on the contrary, that kind of kid is enormously frustrating to a mentor. You have to, you have to be, as a mentor, very resilient to cope with that, I think in the early years, I used to talk about this a lot, about the concept being left on the street corner. You know, kids who've been abused like this are going to test you to see if you're real or you're not real. They're certainly not going to tell you the truth about what happened to them, but they don't trust very well. And what happens with them typically is as you reach out to them, I'm talking metaphorically, you know, not necessarily physically, but as you reach out to them, they shrink from you. Because these kids, again, you know, when I say these kids, it's not, uh, what I mean by that is it's not uncommon, it's typical, it's, 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 it's normal that they develop this force field around themselves. You know how when they teach to, um, to uh, children who are learning disabled, sometimes they don't know about boundaries, healthy boundaries, so they teach them sort of an arm's length away. That's the distance you stay away from someone else. When you talk to them, you know, you don't move into their space and you don't stand, you know, 30 feet away. An arm's length, they try and teach this. These kids, you try and move into an arm's length of them, and they're out of there. They will never let you in. It's like they have an invisible force field around them. It's usually a telltale sign, and that's very, 
frustrating to a mentor who thinks I'm going to reach out and I'm going to care and I'm going to connect with this kid. And so physically and metaphorically, as you reach out to them, they shrink away from you because they're scared of that relationship of where it might reach to. They're the ones who internalize and they, you won't see a word, you won't hear anything, you won't see the change necessarily. But those are the telltale signs that they've got this tremendous pain inside, the isolating you know, and staying away from others. Then you have the internalizers who do very self-destructive behaviors. The cutters and the burners are typical. The kids who cut themselves and burn themselves are absolutely classic and typical of uh, the sexual abused. And, and as one kid, you know, I've had kids who sat there in front of me. You know, I've sat on Ben Yehuda in Yerushalayim with kids who will sit there talking to me while they burn themselves to help me understand how much better that is than what really happened to them. And they can actually do it. They can sit there talking to you and put a cigarette right into their hand and you can smell it and hear it. And then they explain to you, let me tell you what my life is really about and why this helps me. And they'll talk to you about how the anticipation of a cut or a burn can last a day or two, at least. And that was when the psychological pain, shame, and fear, and embarrassment, and hopelessness comes up inside them because of what happened to them. They can yield a few days of freedom from that kind of psychological battering, internal battering, from the anticipation of one cut or one burn. The act itself is usually not a fast one. It's a slow, lingering one. The recovery can take a day or two of pain and hurt. So a kid can yield three or four days easily of freedom from all the psychological hurt and pain with one cut. The worst I ever saw was a kid who had a girl who had over 150 cuts on her body. And like I said, I've seen kids who can sit there, look you right in the eye, and put a cigarette right into their hand. And, and, and one can only understand what the psychological pain they must be carrying, how intense that must be that they can look you in the eye and stick a cigarette there. That's the internalizers who will, they internalize all their pain inside and they cut and blame, they don't get it out, they hurt themselves. And it's also a form of punishment, of course, because, you know, typically there's, you know, I allowed this to happen. You know, how could I have let it? Why didn't I scream? All this kind of stuff. Or why did I let it happen the second time? And they begin to understand when you're a little girl and frightened and, and, and intrigued at the same time. You know, I always explain to them, sexual activity is meant to be enjoyable. <laughs> What's happened, unfortunately, is this, th- this experience that's meant to be pleasurable and wonderful has been enacted in you in a totally horrendous, abusive, and unproductive fashion. But in its essence, it's a nice thing. But you've got nowhere to go with it. So, of course, they crave it more or want it. At the same time, you know, there's a lot of lambdas. I don't want to go into the whole thing now. But there's, uh, you know, the re- Well, I think I'm going to talk about reenactment actually, in a minute. Then you've got the other ones. For girls, typically, the internalizers will be the ones who come into the office or you see them dressing like a boy. They'll dress as much as they can like a boy, typically short hair. They'll very often wear a jacket and a hood. You'll see them with a hood. They'll look like, they'll look like a guy. 
And that's part of the, no, they, they want to look like they'll, they'll diminish their feminine form as much as possible, which is also part of their coping mechanism and hoping it won't happen again. I don't have a female form. Maybe no one will be attracted to me again. It's part, and also part of the self-destructive anger. And, and the work with them is to help them understand and regain their femininity, which is a huge you know, piece of work that can take years till they are willing to feel safe to acknowledge I'm a woman and regain the femininity and believe I'm not going to be abused again. That's just a whole piece. And of course, then they get married and they will inevitably, inevitably have flashbacks and those experiences again, which still needs to be treated. Again, you see the abuse is not necessarily the act. It's the devastation to their life. The externalizers, the externalizers, the ones we all see much more. The externalizers are the kids who run out being promiscuous. The girls especially will run out, they just will sleep with anyone they can. It's all part of how they can say, nothing bad happened to me. What do you think, nothing bad happened to me? I'm having a blast. I enjoy it. I love sex. You know, and the more the better. And they're out there trying to get sexually involved with everyone possible. What they don't understand is that's part of a process of their own you know, containing and maintaining themselves in life because they, they, how do they deal with the abuse otherwise? So in their own heads, they're dealing with the abuse by acting out sexually is as if to say, nothing happened. I'm having a blast. What's wrong with this? This is fun, which is just another way of coping, a coping mechanism. Typically, they, those ones will almost always lead to drug abuse. Because ultimately, there's always the other edge of that sword. On the one hand is, nothing bad happened to me, look, I'm having fun. And then in the dark recesses of their brain is, look what I became. Look what I am. And they're devastated. And those also will, by the way, cut and burn, but for a slightly different reason. They're doing the cutting and burning, not so much as blocking, but as self-punishment for what their behavior is. And they will almost always end up doing drugs because they'll very quickly learn that when you smoke up, you don't feel so bad. It just, it just, that's the facts. I mean, you know, that is the reality. And you can't blame any of them. I mean, it's just, it's just madness to even think we can blame a kid who's been abused and is walking around with that siren suffering and then they go and smoke up and then we punish them for smoking up. It's like madness. But, but it's okay if we give them, you know, an antidepressant. You know, we can medicate them that way is okay, but, but smoking up is not okay. All they are is little kids trying to work out how to deal with the pain for something that they can't even talk about yet that really happened to them. <coughs> Risk-taking, antisocial behavior, typical of the externalizers, where they're in your face and they're sort of angry with life, they're angry with all of us, and those ones take mentors and eat them for lunch. They eat you up, they kill you. Those ones have to make appointments with you on a cold, wet, windy night on the corner of a road, Dufka, and then not show. They might even be two blocks away looking to see if you came. They want to see, are you going to accept me or not? Their anger, their fury with themselves and with the abuse that happened to them is so intense. If you're going to be in my world, I'm going to test you first. And they're very angry, they're very rebellious. They externalize their behavior, and they act out. And foolishly, unfortunately, if we don't get the proper training and understand where's all that coming from, guess what happens? Countertransference. What's with you? I was waiting for you. What's the matter with you? This is how you treat me? No wonder you went off. I mean, forgive me, but it just, it's, it's bizarre. You know, without fully understanding what's happening to them, we end up reacting to them that now you're the, you, what's wrong with you? Of course people treat you bad. Look at the way you act. 
Whereas we don't realize all that's part of their testing to see whether they're safe with you or not safe because you claim you're safe. And that's one of the destinies of mentors is to understand that you can't avoid this happening to you. It will happen sooner or later and you have to be, be able to identify it. And usually that kind of extreme provocation is almost always the result of abuse. It's almost always someone who's been abused who's going to come now and test you to see if it's real. Your relationship is real. Okay, let's talk a little bit about repetition. Is that really the time? Oh, gosh. Can I go for a while? Is that all right? Can I just keep going? Okay. No, I'm on page like three. You know, I'm sorry. I said it was a course. Repetition. So pre-puberty, people ask the kasha, as if, like, now, now, let me nail them now. Now I'm going to prove to you it's a bad kid. Because, look, they repeat. They set themselves up. Look at the way you're dressing. What do you expect? You're going to walk around dressing like a slut. Someone's going to come and uh, touch you. What is all that about? Typically, typically, the reenactment is looking to reenact the event, hoping for a different outcome. Somehow, they hope that they can sort of heal themselves. This is all unconscious, by the way. This is not like, you know, they have a little book where they flip through how do I deal at age nine with the abuse that happened to me. But unconsciously, what's happening, this is so valuable because later on it can really be part of their healing when they can begin to understand what their behavior was about. They're reenacting is means like this. I want to set myself up for the same event. Let's see if it happens. And when it does, they're hoping for a different outcome so that somehow maybe I can heal myself. Somehow I can take control and not feel vulnerable about life and not feel that I'm so controlled and so threatened because every day once they've been sexualized, they can walk down the street and they never know what can happen next from whom or where. They never know. So if you reenact, not that again, I'm not saying they deliberately go and set it up but there's like an unconscious need to reenact this event to hope for a different outcome which might free me that I can feel safe and in control again of course the end result is the same because the reenactment sets them up and they get abused again so now you need another reenactment to see if I can do it yet again and it keeps on this obsessive behavior until who knows where they end up until it's just part of their life it's part of who they are Okay, I talked about post-puberty. Let me, let me talk about two other very, very, very painful issues. Um, with uh, and, and there's so much, but I, I'm just plucking out a few just because they're so common. I think the guys at our place, you know, I've worked with, will be very familiar with this one. And this one I, I call, this is not in the literature. You won't see this anywhere, at least if you do. Please tell me about it because I invented this one. You know, and, and, I, and if someone else has said it, I'll be so pleased. You know, it'll be sort of validating. I call it harvesting. And harvesting is a concept that explains so much about what goes on with kids, especially with the boys in school, especially why they're repeating their behavior because people don't understand this they feel like look we got you know people walking up and down the corridors we got people in the hallways we got people in and out and we sent the guy to the bathroom and we know he was back in two minutes what happened already what could have happened so this denial of the system about how is all this happening the belief feel the belief is that nothing really is happening because there wasn't time for anything really to happen this is where the concept of harvesting is so crucial a pubescent boy who is now, who himself may well have been the product, not necessarily, but may well have been the product and is almost likely to be the product of molestation that occurred to him when he was younger, 
can easily go into a bathroom. This boy who doesn't have access to, if I can use the phrase, it sounds horrible, sort of mainstream pornography. He doesn't have access to this. He can't get it anywhere. But he can go into a bathroom or go behind a building at school and pull down a little kid's underwear and touch his private parts. Or he can put his mouth on the private parts of this kid. Or he can force a kid to put his mouth on his private parts. And all this can happen in 30 seconds flat. What's happened is he's harvested pornographic feelings, material, stimulatory, self-stimulatory material, imagery, feelings. It's tactile or it's felt. He can remember the feeling of that private parts on his mouth or lips. Or he can remember seeing it, the visual stimulation. And with that, he can then go into a stall or go home later on and masturbate with that visual imagery that was in his head, not aware at all that he's just devastated a life. Or at least 50-50. Let's go back with the resilience concept. But it's quite likely he just devastated a life. He introduced another kid. He's not a pedophile in the same sense that he's only aroused by little children. He's not 16 or older. He's under 16. So Bukhal doesn't fit the criteria. The, although the kid may be five years younger than him, but he doesn't, it's not about pedophilia. It's about gathering pornography, gathering imagery and information. And again, this is a crucial, crucial piece of information because when the schools or homes or who, yeshiva, whatever you're, you're talking to about cases like this, they can't quite grasp how is this stuff going on. They're expecting, like, what do you have? Like some, you know, like a bed somewhere where these kids are having sex? Like, what are you thinking? How could they, they're thinking of some very abusive rape, insects, or sexual act. The most, the vast majority of all exposure to molestation that introduces our kids into the sugya of molestation is harvesting, comes from harvesting, where an older kid was trying to gather stimulatory material for self-stimulation for later on. It wasn't about this kid. It was about pornography. And now this kid is now, everything we've been talking about tonight, his sexual pathways may well be opened, and now his destiny is to follow on to this till we can treat this poor kid, and it just goes on and on and on. And interestingly enough, they don't stay with the same kid, because just like pornography addicts will report that they get bored with a type of pornography after it doesn't do the same job, same thing with these kids. They go from kid to kid to kid, and the excitement is also part of it, of getting, gathering the information, the fear and the excitement becomes part of the whole package too, which, by the way, makes it really hard for them later on in their recovery because they don't even realize why they're doing it, but they associate sexual acts with risk-taking. So they end up going to places and doing things that are tremendously risky. The rest of us can't fathom. What are you thinking? The likelihood of getting caught is so great. Like, what were you... Go, you know, the Gemara says, go to Iracheres, you know, go to another... And Loiva Shchoyrim, if you've got to be Chayte, like, that's not like that. They're right here doing things in front of us with people where they might well get caught because what's happened is they've associated risk-taking. Many of these men, when they get married later on, will do highly risky sexual activities with prostitutes, for example, which they all know is the chance of AIDS is, is, is very intense. 
right? There's no licensing here. There's no uh, testing for prostitutes, right? And they'll do very highly risk-taking activities. And that's part of what happened in their early harvesting experiences where they were acting in risky behavior and, and there was a risk component involved with it which becomes part of their experience of sexuality for later on. That's harvesting. And that's the vast majority of what we deal with is kids who were initially exposed to sexual molestation or sexual abuse through the process of harvesting another kid, gathering information. Now I'll tell you a much worse one. This is probably the most painful thing you're going to hear tonight. And one of these days, I don't know, you know, this is the first time I'm going to talk about it publicly because I don't know what to do with this information. Here's the facts. I'm pretty convinced that... Let's say, look at the statistics, half and half, right? All kids who are molested, half seem to be resilient and they appear to pull their lives together. Half are pretty much devastated and they've got a whole new journey and a direction in life because of what happened to them. Of that half, the 50%, that's now our control group. That means that's now the 100% of people who've been molested and hurt by it. One third of them are going to repeat seems to be pretty much the statistic. A third of them. So one in six of all children who are molested are going to repeat this behavior. (coughs) Mental health professionals who work with this sugya, if they're honest, will acknowledge that we don't reach a certain percentage. In the whole mental health field, forget sexual abuse, in general... About 10% we don't reach. About 90%, it's a pretty good statistic when you think about it, we probably reach and help, significantly help, about 90% of all people who come into the doors of competent mental health professionals get better. About 10% don't. And they need special care, and there's a reason why, and believe me, it's not about blaming them. It's about the illness that we haven't understood. It's really our fault, not theirs. But nevertheless, about 10% don't get better. In the treatment of sexual abuse... That third who repeat is very significant in terms of treatment outcome, and I'll show you why, and this is what's so painful. When we treat kids, the 100% group who have been affected by this, at some point, most of them or many of them are going to enter treatment somewhere for some reason. Most not to do with the sexual abuse. The vast, vast, vast majority is the depression or the drug use or the cutting, it's some other issue or the marital problem. It's rare, if ever... You know, maybe, I don't know, I don't, I don't know statistics, but I would guess 10 to 15% probably have the courage just to walk in and say, I've been abused, I need help. The vast majority, they hide it, they're ashamed of it, obviously, and embarrassed about it, or maybe just don't connect the dots to realize what it is that's really causing the external expression of their pain and agony, which is the depression, or the drug use, or the anxiety attacks, or whatever it is they're dealing with, or the borderline personality disorder, whatever they're dealing with later on. You know, that's the issue. We, in treatment of this, <clears throat> and I, I, I'm willing to hear feedback or even criticism from other mental health professionals, I think we do well with about two-thirds of that population who enter treatment for whom sexual abuse was one or the early you know, problem they were dealing with that probably caused whatever it is that they're now suffering with. I think we do pretty well with about two-thirds of them. About a third, I think we don't reach at all. We don't do very well at all, and I want to tell you why. And uh, and it's very painful. 
Let me tell you about the typical treatment model that's embraced throughout the community. And by the way, Snagay, I'm sure as mentors, you kind of fall into the same trap because it's the same trap we fall into as, as mental health professionals. The typical treatment model evolved or revolves around a model of victims and villains where in some way or the other we try to heal this troubled neshama to help it understand you were victimized, you're not the villain, you're a victim. This happened to you. It happened against your will. Even if you lay there and you're aware you didn't scream, you couldn't. You were too young, you were too naive, you were too scared. Even if you reenacted, you were looking to try and treat yourself and heal yourself. We go through the whole sugya of... uh, what happened to them, typically, and this is what most mental health professionals do, within a sort of framework of victims and villains. You're not the villain. You didn't want this. You didn't initiate this. You didn't do this. You were victimized. And that's how the treatment emerges for most people. Years ago, it began to occur to me, as I looked at my practice, I wasn't satisfied at all. And it was particularly the work I did with girls, although I found this with boys too that uh, I realized we weren't reaching some of them. They just bounced right off. As much as you do the exact same work you do, and I could fault myself and just say I wasn't doing it well enough, but it's not true. You know, I was careful to do the same work. And in the same way, it was quite efficient and extremely helpful for two-thirds who seemed to be on the road to recovery, because recovery from abuse is lifelong. It's not like an event. It doesn't just happen one day you're, you're recovered, let's give you a plaque, and you're, you know, you're out. It's a lifelong struggle that you have to deal with and emerge from forever, and there's always some development and emerging from it and getting healthier and healthier all through life. <clears throat> but I realized we weren't reaching a third of them. It happened one day that I had a girl in therapy, a a young woman actually, she was probably in her early 20s, who was extremely angry, had been to a number of mental health professionals who she felt had kind of let her down. I was just one in a long line of these, you know, failures, and she was one of those ones that we don't reach. And I was beginning to be suspect that we were doing something wrong. It was us, not them. You know, and was, the initial reaction, uh, understandably, is that there must be a d- another disorder. There's a dual diagnosis. Maybe there's something else that we didn't have what it was. Maybe she's resistant for a certain reason. Maybe she's not lying. You know, she's lying. It, it, we always, never, we blame them. It's really awful. And it's wrong, by the way. It's just wrong. Therapy is meant to embrace the client's system. We're meant to work out how to embrace. You know, if I remember correctly, they pay us. We don't pay them to comply with treatment. We don't give them 150 or $180 and say, do me a favor, please get better, because I need my self-esteem to go up. They pay us and entrust us to make them better. So we're meant to embrace them, not the other way around. And it realized we're missing it. We're missing large numbers of people at this third that we're just not reaching, and I don't know why. And they bounce from therapist to therapist. I'm telling you, I probably had many Corbanus in my early years who I didn't reach and I didn't touch, who probably hate me to this day, and maybe rightly so, because I was part of a system that in a certain way betrayed them. You know, here you're coming to me, and I'm going to help you, and I don't really understand why I'm not. And, and, and I think there is a subtle blaming we do of them for not getting better. You know, they're, they're embarrassing to us. Like, get better, for heaven's sakes. You know, I've got to go home and feel good about myself. I mean, it's awful, but it's true. One particular girl <clears throat> who was very, very angry and particularly angry about the treatment failure and she really wanted help. And I told her, all this stuff I'm telling you, I told her too. 
And I said I felt kind of ashamed about it. And I asked her if she would allow me to do like an experiment with her and do something I don't usually do in therapy, although there are those people who think I'm a tough therapist. I'm not tough at all. I'm extremely compassionate, and that frees me to be very honest. So I can be very, like, forceful or push with a client, you know, and challenge them because I can do it in a compassionate way, which is the heart and soul of good therapy. I asked her if I can really be tough on her, but really tough, and push and push. And that means like this, I told her, even if you say no, I'm going to push you. And if you scream and tell me to stop, I'm going to continue. I'm going to challenge you and fight you, and you're going to stay here, and we're going to do the work till we got it done. Are you willing to give it a shot? And I scheduled a large period of time in, 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 to do this. And she was masking, terrified, but masking. And uh, so we started doing therapy, and I started pushing, and I started pushing deeper and pushing. And I said to her, <coughs> tell me what it is you're not telling me. What are you not telling me? What's the lie that you're not telling me about? And when I went that route, I saw the fear, so I knew I'd got her. And I asked her about the fear in her eyes, so she looked more frightened. And I kept fighting and pushing on that fearful look. She couldn't make eye contact with me at all. And I forced her to make eye contact with me, and she was absolutely terrified, so much so she ran out of my office and ran around the corner of the building. She, and I chased her out. And I did the therapy with her outside in the street, where she was actually crouching on the floor, and she was covering her eyes. She couldn't do eye contact with me when I was pushing her, you know, for what it was she wasn't telling me. And in the end, she burst and cracked, and she told me what it was. And I, I couldn't believe that we could have missed this, and were missing it so often. And what it was, of course, is that she was a repeater. She was still doing it. She hadn't stopped. So here she's in therapy, desperate for help, and far too ashamed because she knows we've got to report her. So how's she ever going to get better? How's she ever going to get clean? And there's so many kids, I suddenly dawned on me, it was like a lightning bolt in my brain when I realized that accounts for the third. A third of the kids we treat repeat. A third of the, excuse me, a third of the kids who are affected by it will repeat. And a third of the kids we treat, we fail. I wondered whether that was the group. Maybe the ones we're failing with consistently are the repeaters, or, or included in that group. It's not a precise science, but maybe included in that group are this bulk of repeaters. And so I started challenging some of the ones I felt I was failing with and discovered time and time again this was what's going on. We're using a model. We, therapists, mentors, community at large, magazine articles, you know, well-meaning magazine articles that I now cringe when I read. And the model is victims and villains. Well, what does that do for the third who we know are repeating? That means they're the villains. Because almost everyone, except for the few pedophiles, Right, which may be a dis you know biochemical some sort of disorder, perhaps. But aside from them, almost everyone who molests was molested. That's how you do it. It happened to you, and now it's part of the things I've been describing all evening. You know, some of these ideas of why people molest again. They don't do it to hurt someone. It's all part of their own sexual satisfaction, or, or trying to relieve themselves, or free themselves, reenactment. Who knows what it is? But they're doing it again. And a third of those that we treat, we don't seem to reach. We seem to fail with. And that's when it occurred to me. That's because we're doing victims and villains. So what on earth do we do if we can't do victims and villains? See, the whole model has to shift. 
that entire model of treatment traumatizes, actually re-traumatizes a third of the people in treatment and appropriately they drop out of treatment because we're actually re-traumatizing them. We're subjecting them to a trauma model that will make them worse, not better. So they're the smart ones and they get out of therapy and they hate therapists and hate everything to do with it and hate God and taboo as well. So we, I started working some years ago on a new model, a new tra- treatment model. It includes a concept like this. And I think to some degree both Trish and Rabbi Milstein mentioned it, although not as a model, but just in, to- in terms of their talks, they touched on these subjects. And it's about the difference between shame and embarrassment. That's where it starts. That's the anchor, is in shame and embarrassment. See, shame is toxic. Shame means I'm an unworthy person. I deserve to die. Someone should kill me. I'm ashamed. I'm using the word shame. I'm not telling you Webster's. And I'm sure some people say, no, shame doesn't mean that. I'm using the word shame right now for that purpose. Right? That's what it means for me right now. Toxic. I want to die. Get me under a truck and get me the hell out of this world because I am an awful predator. I'm a rotten, horrible person and I cannot stop myself doing this again. And I'm ashamed to the core of my being about what happened to me and what I do. And I can't deal. See, I'll do drugs and I'll cut and I'll burn. I'll do everything else because I can't deal. That's shame. It's toxic. Embarrassment is actually quite healthy. It's a good quality. And so what we do, I now do with all my clients is help them differentiate between shame and embarrassment. Again, I'm using the words the way I wish to use them. I'm not doing a Webster's here. But embarrassment, you see, is something that represents high moral values. If I'm embarrassed about my behavior, well, I must have high moral values. Well, if I have high moral values, then how does God look at me? He must look at me in a a positive way, because I'm a person with high moral vows who's embarrassed about my behavior and wants to change it. And that leads to acceptance by God. Whereas shame means I'm an unworthy piece of garbage, which means that I'm not accepted by God because I'm such a worthless piece, and therefore I'm finished and just want to die and hurt myself. The shift out of villains and victims, begins to change into a language of shame or embarrassment, where I can tease that out and help a person to be embarrassed, but stop being ashamed, and shift them. Now, how do you shift them in that direction? Okay, so the shift is, for me anyway, and I haven't formalized this yet, and you know, certainly haven't got other colleagues doing it yet, but it's just the way I do it, and I certainly think in mentoring, you have to have this in your head very, very clearly. Again, you're not treating, but conceptually to understand it, so if there is a good therapist working with them, you can support what's going on, and the difference is in the concept of accountability and responsibility, instead of victims and villains. There's accountability and responsibility. Now I can say to a kid, certainly up to the age of 20, the end of 20, up 21 and up becomes a problem. Even I have a problem with that. And I will go very far to help someone. So if I don't want to do the 21 and up, that's much too sophisticated. You know, and I haven't got it clear enough that I'm willing to put it on a tape. So I just want to acknowledge, you know, at 21, you know, the end of 20th year when Shem gives chorus to a person. So, you know, it's a different story. You're now an adult. I, I don't know. I have a model, but it's a little different. But let's deal with up until then. Anyway, there's accountability and responsibility. The accountability is like this. You're not accountable for what happened to you, nor for your reaction to it. 
what you did, you're not accountable for. Even when you repeated, even when you tried to heal yourself, you're not accountable because someone did a heinous act to you and opened you up. And all the drosh I've said till now tonight, I help them see all this and come to embrace all this so you realize there was almost an inevitability in your behavior and what happened to you that was out of your control. You're not accountable. But you are responsible. You're responsible for two things. You're responsible not to repeat, to work on never repeating it, to traumatize another child the way you were traumatized, and to stay in therapy till you know you're safe. That's what you're responsible for. And you know that almost everyone is so relieved when they hear that and willing to go to therapy now. And I say to them, I can't guarantee how long it's going to take. You say, how long? You know, three months? Like how long? I say, I don't know. Three years? 30 years? I don't know. Let's just get going. I don't know. We'll have to decide somewhere down the line when you're ready. But you are responsible because this heinous thing happened to you to take responsibility not to hurt someone else the way you hurt. That you're responsible not to repeat and to get into therapy and stay in therapy with someone you trust and keep at it. And if you don't like this therapist, find another one. But stay working on yourself till you feel safe. That you're responsible for. But what happened to you, even what you repeated, you're not accountable in Shemayim for that. cannot be. Because you didn't ask for this, you didn't want this to happen. Do you see the shift from victims and villains? It's a total shift. And with that we can begin to embrace people who are repeating or have repeated, especially the kids up to 20 who are struggling with not repeating and they're fighting themselves not to do it. There's a model to work with. I'm not getting into the issue of reporting. You know, what do you do if you know they're repeating? That's not for tonight at all. I'm trying to talk about getting inside, you know, reaching a kid so you have someone who's muksha for help, who you can reach and try and help them, who feel that you feel them so that they can work with you. The, what I haven't said, now I'm going to say, and I've done the setup, you know, it's funny, I, I, I stepped right over it, I think because for me, every time I talk about it, it's so painful. The repeating group, and what happens to them, and how they repeat. What I discovered with this girl, that the first one I broke, and, and, and reached her, what she revealed to me, shocked me so deeply, I never heard this, I didn't know about it. And then I, started asking with more and more kids I worked with, a certain type of profile that, that you can begin you know, to see. It's hard. I can't describe what it is yet. I don't feel secure enough to say that. But beginning to get a sense of who it is. And these are these kids, boys and girls, that the kids they're molesting are babies they're babysitting. And this is huge. It's huge. What they do is take these kids who they think are asleep, and sometimes not. The girls discover they're changing a diaper, and this little boy is aroused. You know, he has some sort of kishri. He's aroused. And they will take that and play with that. And again, it's the harvesting for later use. Or they will actually take the child and rub the child's genitalia and arouse themselves using this child to arouse themselves. And this... I can't even say it, is very common. You have no idea how common this is. Once I learned this and I started talking to kids, I began understanding there are boys who will go and they will put their mouths on these little boys as they're masturbating themselves. 
that's their pornographic material. They're babysitting. They've got porno material right there in front of them. They'll undress a kid and they'll play with their genitals or insert things into these little babies or little children, infants, babies one, two, and three, little kids who will never know, will never report, almost never know about it. And this answered another huge piece of me. Number one, the toxic shame of these repeaters who have done these acts cannot even begin to describe to you what they feel like. Till it comes out of them, it's horrendous. This for them is like they, they feel so, the shame is so intense, it takes enormous treatment even to get them safe enough to admit, let alone then go through the lengthy process of how do you heal from that? How do you heal? You took an innocent child and they know darn well what they've done and they, they can't forgive themselves. I'm convinced there are suicides based on this alone, many in our community. But I'll tell you something else <clears throat> from this. The treatment of it doesn't only go to the one who's victimized and now done to this. Those of us in the community, especially the world of Chinuch, when I speak on molestation or sexual abuse, Someone somewhere asks me about a kid he was working with, a nice kid. They call it a nice, and it always is, a great kid, on the derech, steigen away, learning, davening, doing very well, who has strong sexual, homosexual desires and doesn't know where it comes from, what to do with it. Was never molested. As much as you interview them and talk to them about it, they have zero recollection whatsoever. And I honestly believe or cannot prove this, and I'm telling you straight up front, I don't know how to even go about proving it. I don't know how to do research on it. I don't know what to do with it. I'm sharing it with you because I, we should know this, that I'm, I'm pretty convinced that many of these boys who are nice, good boys, and some of these girls were, who completely deny ever having a molestation experience, by the way, most who deny it, when you do the work long enough, and sensitive enough, they admit it. They always come out of it, or the memory comes back. It's one or the other. They either eventually feel safe with you, and they just tell you, and they just relieve someone they can feel safe with, or they tuck a block to it completely, and they'll have flashbacks and night visions and all sorts of terrible things that happen, and it will come back. That's what happens typically in therapy. There are some who have tremendous sexual arousal, desire, drive, and report having been five, six, and seven years old and fascinated by sex. And they have no idea why. And they absolutely are adamant they were never molested, no one ever touched me, it's not true. And yet, they know since they're little children, they've been fascinated by everything sexual. And I can't prove this, but I'm willing to bet that eventually if someone can work out how to do research on such a thing, we will discover that many of these kids were those molestation victims who a child was babysitting, harvested from them, or used them for self-stimulatory experience, and now, on some, I don't even understand this, I must tell you, but some unconscious level, their neshama, their insides, their kishkas, has been sexualized, and they grow up fascinated about, interested in, drawn to sex and sexual activity, and they feel horrible about themselves and don't know what to do about it. And they are not with the classic symptomatology of molestation victims at all. They're mainstream, doing well. Typically, it's the boys who are now drawn to other boys 
because simply they had a lack of girls. They weren't off the derch, they weren't doing anything wrong. They haven't gone to girls, but they found themselves aroused by boys because sexual stimulation will happen, you know, in any context. And this is a whole sugya that I have to tell you, you know, this is sort of the cutting edge of, I think, where we're holding now, that I honestly don't even know what to do with or where to go with it. But answers, I think, a huge question about why these kids, there's so many kids who claim they were not molested and don't fit those two categories where they will eventually tell you if you make therapy safe enough or it will emerge spontaneously in flashbacks. It's not like that. And they are adamant forever it never happened. And more and more kids, I'm convinced, fit into this category simply because I know so many people who have reported to me because I know this happens now, that yes, included in the people they molested were common, common, when they went babysitting. They regularly did this when they babysat. This was the excitement of babysitting, was to go and masturbate themselves using the genitalia of a child that they were babysitting. And this is like, a boy side, this is like devastating. You know, the only way you can backtrack it, I think, is to... Uh, you know, go and try and go back through and see if you can cross-correlate, you know, molestation victims, you know, uh, with, with babysitting jobs and homes. I mean, it just, it, it, it's, I don't know where to go with it. I have to tell you, I just don't know what to do with it. <clears throat> but at least we need to be aware of it. And I think those two are victims, massive victims, that, that we have to allow for that too. <laughs> it's 10 o'clock. Okay, I've got two, should I continue, and does anyone want to leave, should I just go, anyone wants to go, I understand, I, I'm going to, should I continue, I'm going to continue, okay, we got enough tape here, you got a second tape, you got another one if we need it, good, okay, I, no, there's two more, what, no, no, I need, to, I need 15, I need, I'm going to rush this, I, there's two pieces I want to do, because I just think they're so important, they're just two, I'm sorry, Rebosa, forgive me, I'm sorry, I'm trying to say as quickly as I can, but as honestly as I can, okay, there's two other issues I just want to talk about, they're crucial, the first issue is reference to boys, I'm going to leave out girls and lesbianism and all this piece, because girls with lesbianism, most of the girls with the, the lesbian stuff, They'll grow through that and grow out of that. And it's not uncommon with girls anywhere near as much as homosexuality or homosexual behavior is with boys. It's much more common with the girls, and they seem to grow out of that more naturally later on. The boys with the homosexual ideation is a huge issue, and it's a, a product of this early molestation or sexual abuse that they're then in a yeshiva system where they have zero, zero outlet to expression of any sexual behavior at all, and sooner or later when they hit, this is the other piece why I call it abuse, is not to do with the mysa, but to do with the outcome. Because you have kids, boys, who are molested by boys pre-puberty, and typically, listen to this, when a boy, a healthy, normal male, hits puberty, he develops tivus noshim, sexual drive and desire for women. That's what happens. God made it that way, that, that he should have that desire for kiyamamin, that we should continue and eventually procreate. <clears throat> At the same time as a boy develops tivus nashim, a healthy, normal, non-molested boy will develop an abhorrence, a disgust, a nausea towards tivus anashim, tiva towards men. 
And that's the safeguard built in by the Rabboni Shalom in the system. Prior to puberty, a healthy boy <coughs> excuse me, has neither tithe towards boys or girls, or not, he has nothing. There's no sexual, even though he can have a kishri, an arousal as a little child, it's not associated with sexual drive or taiva for a non-molested, non-touched child. <coughs> Excuse me. However, when a boy who is touched by a male, let's take the classic normal boy, you know, boy in elementary school, 7th grade, 8th grade boy, or if there's a high school attached, it could be a ninth or 10th grade, starts playing with primary and first and second grade kids because they're easy access and there he harvests his material for self-sexual stimulation later on. Here's the abuse, and it's horrendous. The abuse wasn't the miser. But here's, this is about as horrendous as it gets because this boy, in all likelihood, when he hits puberty, will not develop the nauseous reaction against male sexuality. A healthy boy gets tivus noshim, and at the same time, a disgust, a nauseousness towards tivus anoshim. A normal healthy male, wild horses wouldn't make him do this. Do me a favor. Ugh, it's like, please, that is a reaction God gave us to protect us, and that is a toeva. He made it a toeva. And that's a natural reaction. When a boy is molested pre-puberty, this is why it's called sexual abuse. Because the abuse is, he just wrecked his life, Nebuch, because he may well develop sexual drive that's generic. It's boys and girls, it's everything. He just has sexual drive. He, or he may have stronger to women, but he won't have the nauseous reaction towards men. He could have just a power, depending on... The circumstance and how much and the extent and the degree, you know, there's a lot of variables. I think Trish talked about it on the tape. But depending on those variables, however, he will not have a strong, natural, nauseous reaction against male homosexual behavior. Now imagine this poor kid is now taken and stuck in a high school somewhere, whose life is in Yeshiva High School and base Medrash, where he's around boys, where he's threatened not to be around girls all the time, and inevitably he has no restriction, no natural inbuilt safeguard against male sexuality. If that's not abuse, what is? It's, it's mind-boggling, the degree of the abuse. It's utterly devastating. When I treat these boys, who all come in because they get caught doing some homosexual act, and they get thrown out of yeshiva right away. It's just horrendous. They always get kicked out because not... See, I understand transferring. I understand moving into a, his parents. I understand a lot of things. I don't understand throwing out kids for any reason. I just don't understand that. You throw out trash. You don't throw out kids. You know, it just, it just doesn't fit. I understand safeguarding the school and finding a mechanism to make sure the school's safe. Of course, so does he. So does the kid when you say it to them respectfully. They understand it too. And they actually appreciate it because they want to be helped. In the treatment model for this, I use a model. This happened years ago. <clears throat> and I learned this from a kid. You know, I learned most of my stuff from kids. I must tell you, you know, I think I learned most of what I know as a therapist from my clients. They have been my mentors and teachers, not from workshops and not from school, that's for sure. But mostly from my ki the kids the, and the people I work with who teach me. And if you listen well, they're very willing teachers, very willing teachers, especially if they feel you don't have some clever model that you're going to fit them into. You know, 
I'm going to do, you know, I don't even know what these models are, i got to tell you, I can't even name them, all these fancy models, there we you know, you work with a person. They actually, social work school now call it client-centered work. You know what client-centered work it means? Just forget it. Just, like, connect with the client, for heaven's sakes. Like, have them teach you about them. Anyway, <clears throat> here's the model I used with this piece, and I'm going to finish up with a piece about how, how you help families and parents, what the crucial issues are for helping families and parents. I tell the kids the following, and this I learned from a kid, and I use this metaphor all the time now when I get these boys, never, who are thrown out during high school because they're predators, you know, and they started up with someone. And the poor kid is a molestation victim who was taken. You should see their faces when I explain to them, this was taken from you. They sit there bawling away, begging me, I want it back. Can't you give it back to me? Can't you do some therapy? Can't you therapize me and give it back? And the answer is no, no, absolutely not. This is your destiny. It's now different to mine and everyone else. It's utterly devastating. Okay. The story I use with them is one I learned from one of my clients early on, and I kind of adapt this story somewhat to help the kids, these boys, to start their recovery because they are terrified beyond all terror and fear that they are, in fact functionally homosexual and it's just a nightmare where's my life going now like what do I do I'm finished but they know they have strong desire for boys like what am I going to do and it's terrifying and I give them the following now it's a metaphor it's a story but it actually came from an actual story I'll tell you the story as it was you know I adapt it and everyone can adapt a similar story if you ever speak to a kid like this now uh, this kid was uh, one of these victims and then he had an amazing experience and I've used this, and I tell the kids like this. I say, listen, imagine the following. You go on vacation with your family to Pesach or Yantaf, and you go to one of these kosher hotels, and you're there in the hotel, and as you're checking in to the hotel, you discover on your floor, right outside your room, a room next to your room. There's a family who have the three rooms after that, and the room next to yours, I tell these Bahram, Forgive my language here, but there's no other way to talk about this and be very straightforward. I tell them there's the cutest 15, 16-year-old, adorable-looking Basiakov girl. And as you both check in to your rooms, you happen to check in the same time, she gives you a wink as you check in. She smiles at you and winks at you as you check into your room. You happen to also notice... The opposite your room, there's another family who have a few rooms, and there's a boy, 15, 16-year-old, cute-looking boy, who you noticed in the lobby, and you felt attracted to him. And as you look around before you walk in, he gives you a wink too. They both do it. That night, you're in your room, and you can't sleep. You're full of tivers, you're full of sexual lust. It's built up in your body, and you don't know what to do with yourself. And you think to yourself, I'm going to go out and knock on one of those doors. Which one? And I set them up with this. You have to answer me immediately. Don't think. I want an immediate answer to this. Which one would you rather go to? And I'm telling you, all the boys, I've had one exception all the years. All the boys say, well, the girl, of course. And that's what I use to start healing them. That obviously you're not homosexual. You're traumatized. 
you're not a homosexual because a homosexual wouldn't have that reaction. And by the way, I now know that's true because I've worked with people, even though they're treatable too, and this nonsense about not treating them is rubbish, you can treat it. And, and, and I had some spectacular results with this if it's done properly. But the homosexual will say the boy. At that stage of his life, he will say the boy. He will have no interest in the girl, and he will want the boy. And all these boys will tell you the girl. They'll instantly react that way. Because it's not that they don't have taiva to girls, it's they have no shmira or nauseous reaction of taiva towards boys. So if they're around a yeshiva all day long, and a, a dorm, and, a, and a, you know, and then the showers and rooms in yeshiva life, well, of course they're exposed to that, and of course they're going to find themselves aroused again and again and again, which is the product of that early molestation that took from them the natural disgust, nausea feeling that a healthy male has towards male sexuality. And that's the treatment model we start working with to help them re-embrace the fact you can have arousal towards a girl. And then you go from that point on, and it's a long process. It's a long process. I want to finish with um, some advice because uh, the family mentoring, I understand, you know, the big Cholim people especially, uh, but we all need to know this. Just, you know, I'm going to do this as fast as I can, forgive me. But what, uh, what advice do we give to um, families? First of all, you've got to address the issue of denial. It is 100% normal for anyone to be in denial about this thing happening with your kid. I tell people very clearly, the Rabbani Shalom created all middas, including denial. Denial is a wonderful middah given by God to be used when the trauma you're facing is so intense that if you would react to it, you'd probably do something wrong. Please, if you are in denial, I ask them, stay there. Stay there till we can get a handle on what's happening with your kid, till we can work out how to help your child and help you help your child. You're better off in denial. By the way, interesting, it's a paradoxical intervention because almost anyone you say this to right away says, no, 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 I can deal with it, I can deal with it. And you say, no, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. I think you're better off not doing Let us handle it for now. Let us deal with your kid. You just say, tell him for the time being, and we will bring you in when your kid's ready to be brought in. And we'll bring, of course we'll bring you in. You're part of the, the healing, but we'll bring you in when your kid's ready to be brought, to have you brought in. And almost always they'll say, no, 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 I'm ready, I'm ready. I say, really, you're ready? I say, yes. I say, okay, your daughter's a prostitute. Can you handle it? I say, oh my God, you're kidding. I say, okay, she's not. It's okay. But you see you can't handle it. Stay in denial. The one thing she's not is a prostitute. Don't worry about it. Well, what is she? You see, you can't handle it. You're frightened. Standard. So denial, it's not a tease, it's really honest. Denial is a God-given middle, and we should use it where appropriate. And the appropriate place to use denial is when you have a trauma you can't deal with. So stay in denial till you can work out and people can guide you how you should be dealing with it. Stay there. But just don't stay there forever. You know, come out of it eventually, right? Get out of this. That's number one. Here's the issues. There are one, two, three, four issues. Shmira, therapy, self-esteem and support. Shmira, you, any family that they discovered now their kid has been molested, and the, they've now discovered your kid's a molestation victim, the metaphor I use is I tell them, understand me well. What you have to react now is the same way as if, some, what would happen if someone walked into an airport and at, since 9-11, and at the top of their lungs they would scream, BOMB! What would happen in the airport? 
pandemonium. You have to react as if someone just screamed bomb in your life. Your life is changed. You're not going to go to work and school and everything just like you did before. Just like 9-11 was a watershed in the world, so this event is a watershed in your life. It has now changed. And you've got to react accordingly. You can't get life as normal. So, that's number one. Number two, Shmira exists pretty much until your kid gets married. Until your kid gets married, you are going to be on this sugya, helping your child, protecting your child, having open dialogue eventually with your child till they get married. It's an open book now. There's no such thing as, we're going to handle this. They went to three sessions. You know, it's all under control. That's utterly irresponsible. Till your child's married, there's a level of shmira that will now happen. Bomb has been shouted in the airport. Ayan Raya, your child needs to know that you are the compassionate Ayan Raya. You're looking over their shoulder. You're watching. There's no such thing anymore as everything's safe now. It's all fine. It's not true. A third repeat. And given the opportunity, how do you know your kid's not one of those thirds? It's your responsibility now to be the Iron Roy. Avada, you have to learn how to be an Iron Roy in a sensitive way, in a nice way, not in a threatening, angry way. It's, you have to have compassion. No one asks for this. No kid gets up and goes to, you know, ShopRite for the molestation cornflakes, you know, to make sure they're molested that day. You have to have compassion. But Iron Roy, your kid needs to know you're watching and you need to talk about it. The issue of going to friends, sleepovers, camp. I get consulted about this all the time, and I say a very simple line. If you, in your heart, and all honestly, are afraid that sooner or later you're going to send them, you're going to get that phone call saying something happened, then don't send them. Do not send them till you can look in your heart and in all honesty say, it's not Shaykh, I'm getting that phone call. It's gone, it's taken care of. You have a suffix, you're going to get that phone call, you cannot send them. Sorry. Your life has changed. By the way, I, I'm saying it's sounding tough. Believe me, it's not tough to the people, the parents, or the kid. I don't mean that. I mean to be, you know, passionate. I, I'm sorry if I'm sounding tough. I'm not. But parents need to be supported and encouraged and to work with them. But to be clear, we need to be clear with them. These are your responsibilities now. God put it in your lap. I didn't. I'm just telling you what he put in your lap. All the above, all the above continue until you can reassess the story because your kid is in therapy and talking freely with you, parent, and with the therapist about what's happening. That means you can have family sessions. It takes sometimes years to be able to have family sessions because who knows what abuse has occurred on the way. Until you can have family sessions where you can talk openly about what happened, then all the above apply. You cannot stop the above. They all continue. So it gives a goal for the kid and the parents to work in therapy together to get there so we can take off some of these restrictions and helps them get real and helps them understand how serious this is. Therapy. You encourage therapy strongly for a kid, but don't ever force it. The biggest waste of time is kids re-traumatized in therapy by being shoved into therapy inappropriately. Let me tell you a fact. All kids, teenagers, lie when they go to therapy. They all lie. There's no such thing. They tell truth as well. They tell some truth, but they all lie, and they all lie in two ways. They all leave out crucial information 
that they don't tell you, that they really should tell you, because they're too embarrassed and ashamed to tell you, so they lie about that. And they all distort, subtly and not so subtly, information about what happened to make themselves look better and other people look worse. They all lie. And if the therapist doesn't realize that, you again re-traumatize them, because they're lying, they're not telling the truth. And worse still, you damage therapy forever. They think therapists are all jerks. I tell kids at the end of the first session, you know it's okay to lie, by the way. You know, you have to come on time and the fee and the cancellation, and it's okay to lie. And they say, well, what do you mean? I don't lie. I say, of course you lie. Please, you're a teenager. They say, I'm very offended. You know, blah, blah, blah. And I say, but you lie. Come on, let's just get real. It's okay. I'm telling you I'm cool. It's fine. I don't mind if you lie. Just let me know when you finish lying. And they look at me as if I'm mad. I say, no, no, you don't get it. We'll do pre-therapy. I don't mind doing pre-therapy with you. Just let me know when you trust me, when you've tested me enough, and you realize you can work with me, and you've decided to tell me the truth. And they get all offended. And I say, you're offended? Okay, let me explain to you what lying is. And I tell them those two things. You leave out information darn well. You know you're going to leave out stuff you will not tell me, because you're too embarrassed, and you'll distort stuff. And then they say to me, well, I don't do that. And I say, oh, first words out of your mouth. You just lied. And then they laugh, and I say, see, I got you, right? And they know it. But if you force someone into therapy, they make up boobamices, they tell you stuff's not true, they don't tell you the real story, so it's not therapy, it's actually in a certain way traumatic, unless the therapist knows that's what's going on. If you've got a therapist who knows how to work with a kid who you know is going to lie and can tease them and play with them, it's great. Otherwise, don't send them, tell them, doors open, when you're ready, hey, we'll do therapy, but not till you're ready. Best therapy is to work with the parents, to teach them how to create an open communication with their child. Best therapy with a traumatized kid is to get that relationship going so the kid can eventually turn to their parents and feel accepted and safe. That's worth more for your buck than anything else. Get the parents to go and learn how to be open with their own kid. Embrace, accept, not blame. Help them, help them take responsibility. That's the best buck. And anyway, you want to get to the family therapy anyway, in order to relieve some of the schmear issues. Next issue, self-esteem, crucial. Any kid who's been molested, it sounds odd, but they're going to be so devastated in their journey through life now. It's going to be such a hard struggle with them to get through school and life with all the horrible feelings inside. So if there's any weakness academically, fix it, plug the hole, mortgage your house, sell your house. But get them tutoring to help them with whatever issues they're struggling with so at least we can give them a reasonable chance of being an academic success because chances of surviving are very slim if they've got molestation and they've got some weakness academically. And secondly, get them extracurricular self-esteem building activities. Art, piano, guitar, karate, sports, outside school pay for something to build them computers get them building something where they feel good i one kid who had an entire i got the father it was amazing he had his kid in high school running outside school an entire car leasing business and he was able to do it he had it was all done online the whole thing online the father had the contacts and they put it together and this kid instead of being busy with his machshavas and his fighting and it was very open and we did the therapy together he came home and got online and so under his father's you know instruction they started it was, was leasing cars it was all online he had a whole online business going it was fantastic building self-esteem to counteract the devastation to their self-esteem because of what's happened while we're trying to treat them help them so tutoring to plug the hole and then extracurricular to build self-esteem, a crucial uh, implementation of that is crucial to help a kid like this. And last, 
is express support, yes, parents can express sadness. Yes, you can be sad. You're allowed to be sad. Why shouldn't you be sad? A parent can be taught and supported how to look at your kid and say, I'm so sad. Yes, you can cry. You can feel terrible. But you can't be angry. You can't blame. Yes, sadness. Yes, pain. Absolutely. You can't deny parents. You can't tell parents, you've got to walk around and be supportive and loving all the time. Yeah, they're going to break apart and cry sometimes. And you can tell them that. But as long as you distinguish it from anger. No anger. Okay, let me say one last thing and then I'll, I'll, I'll finish up. And I want to say the following. In treatment, in therapy, what's all... You know, I've said a lot of stuff very quickly here. I guess we'll have to pull apart the tape and analyze it all. And again, this is only part of it. There's a lot more we could say. But I just think this is, I hope, filling some of the holes that were left from the last presentations, which were fabulous. It's not to... Please don't in any way perceive as any criticism. It wasn't. Just I wanted to fill in pieces I feel were missing. What's the goal of treatment? The goal of treatment is to find meaning and purpose. It's like I tell the ones who are homosexual, do you real or acting out homosexual, do you realize you have a mitzvah in the Torah I don't have? They say, what do you mean? They say, well, you're not allowed to, Mishkav Zacha is an Issa in the Torah. And I assure you, young man, no way would you get me to do that. I can't do it if I wanted to. You can. So you get a mitzvah that I don't get. So apparently in your neshama, in your destiny, is struggling with this mitzvah, though it's love, not to do this act, is part of your tikkun neshama. It's a very interesting mahalach I go on with them, which, and again, it's not the first thing I say when they walk in the door. You know, let's be clear. But somewhere down the line, conceptually, where do you fit them back into this world? And I want to share with you the piece I use, optimal therapy, is that they should come to this understanding later on. And that means you never say it to them, you never tell it to them. But mentors, therapists, rebbes, parents, uncles and aunts, we all support a process of recovery that's designed without ever saying it. Without ever saying it. That they're going to walk into you, and they do this, and it happens to me sometimes, a client will walk in after a few years of treatment, they'll say to me, you know, don't say anything. I'm going to say something, but you're not allowed to smile or react. I just want you to hear how I feel. And don't say I told you so or anything like that. And then they tell me, and it's usually with floods of tears and a lot of pain, and then they pull themselves together and look at me and say something like, you know, as crazy as this may sound, but I think I realized this was, this was my destiny. It had to happen to me, and it was good for me. They come to that place. And it's long years of work to ever get someone there. It's extru- and you can never tell it to one. It's actually disgusting to say that to someone. You know, it's like going to a shiva where someone lost a child and saying, you know, Hashem only gives problems that you can, you know, you must be able to handle, you must be so special. You know, you know, all that stuff is for a person to come to themselves, for a person to see themselves. You don't ever tell that to someone. It's cruel. It's, it's, it's mummish abusive. But yes, the process of embracing someone's life and recovery is about helping them come to that place because there is no other place to go to. For myself, and I think we have to embrace this if you ever work with anyone, I want to share one small piece to finish with tonight. And thank you for listening. I'm sorry for keeping you so long. I I didn't realize and I apologize. But I want to read you a Rebbeinu B'chai. The Rebbeinu B'chai is in Parshish Kiseitse, Chof Beis, and the Pasuk is on 
the mitzvah ma'aka. Ma'aka is, you know, you have to build a fence around the, if you have a house with a flat roof that you use for laundry or sunbathing, or, I don't know, whatever you use it for, you have to put a ma'aka, a, a fence, around the roof. That's a mitzvah in the Torah, in Kiseitse. And it says like this, Valderich HaMedrash, Rebbein B'chai has three pshotim, it's the second one, the middle one. He says, Vosisa ma'aka legagecha ki yipala noifamimeno. Half the posseg is missing, it doesn't matter. But he says, you have to make a fence around the roof of your house, ki yipal mimenu, because the faller will fall off the roof. So the question the Medrash asks is, surely it should have said, ki yipal mimenu, or pen yipal mimenu, lest someone falls off the roof. What's the double ocean? Pen ki yipal hanoifel, the faller will fall. What do you mean the faller will fall? So he says like this, listen to this. Valderich HaMedrash, the Medrash says, Roy Hoyo Lipo Misheshis Yemei Bracious. It was suitable and appropriate from Sheshis Yemei Habracious that this Neshama is going off a roof and will die. Thus is the fact. Oval Atalo Sigram you better make sure that his death isn't your fault therefore you have to build a marker around the roof the Indian of Medrash this is short what's the Indian of this Medrash it's suitable, it's appropriate from Sheshus Meabrashus that this Neshama should fall off a roof and die how's that appropriate, how's that suitable Roy, Roy, it was Roy, right the Indian of Medrash ki kol hanivram kulam Nivru All people, creatures are created with their willing desire. Everyone gets created wanting to be brought back to this world. And a Kodesh Baruch Hu created, uh, Kodesh Baruch Hu told them at the beginning of the Bria, I'm not sure if that means this time they came back or the beginning, which it may well mean. They told their Neshama, you're going to go back to this world. And this is everything, kolinom kulam, everything that's going to happen to you. Vikola mikrim ha sidim lovalehem, and all the events that will occur to them in the course of their life. Vikhenodiam, and furthermore, he tells to them, Yumechayem Yisos Mechtiya, he tells them when they're going to be born and to whom and how, and when they're going to die. And how. Vikhenim is onosayim in Berevachimbasar. He tells them their parnasa, will you have plenty or will you have it difficultly with pain? Whether you have it from yourself, you'll make parnasa, or you have to go and collect. And the chazal of the doyosh, called all maiseberashas, everyone is created ledayatom. That means that everyone knows exactly before you're born what is going to happen to you when you come back to this world. And everyone accepts it. Bechefsom ubritsoinom, v'akol rotsui v'kibloi. And every person before they come back, rotsui v'kibloi. From the perspective of Olam Emes, this is Alma de Shikra. This is the world of lies. We don't see the truth here, but that's called Olam Emes. And in that world, it's all true. And it, we, it, the, you see the whole story. And in that world, before Neshama is sent back, you see everything you have to go through. All the mikrim asidim lava. It's not mine. Not making this up. This is Rabbeinu Bechai Rishon, and everyone accepts it. On this, the Medrash says, "Roy It's suitable. This person is gonna 
it is suitable, this person is going off the roof. From Sheshus, Yimeya, Bereshus, they saw anew and accepted, this is part of my tikkun, is to go off that roof and die. That's how I fix my neshama. I need that in my life. For Afal Piche, nevertheless, Yesh Onish Godel the one who causes it will get a terrible, terrible punishment in Shemayim for causing them to go off the roof, even though they're going to go off the roof. Oh, but the one who didn't make that marker and caused them to go off the roof will have a terrible Einish. Oh, but this person's going off the roof. And one time I went to the Mashkiach Shlita Matisio and I asked him, and I went over this Rabbeinu Bechai with him, and I said to Mashkiach, tell me straight, yes or no, is sexual abuse included in this Rabbeinu Bechai? Yes or no, I need to know. And he said to me, yeah. I said, I'll quote you on it. Yes, I mean, you're telling me that's part of this, that in Olam Emes, someone is shown what's going to happen to them, and that's part of their destiny is to go through this, struggle with it, grow from it, and whatever destiny they're going to have because of it, that's part of their destiny, just like everything else in this world. And he said, 100% yes, that's exactly what the Medrash means. Therapy, treatment, recovery, remediation. You can never say this. Believe me, I don't pick up this Rebbeinu Bechai when they come into therapy and tell them, you know, here's the roadmap to therapy. But good treatment, our collective treatment, because therapy doesn't work alone in a vacuum. You need mentors, you need caring people and family and uncles and aunts. You need a lot of stuff to repair this damage. It doesn't get done just in therapy. It's a community issue. We all heal together. Therapists have their role. Mentors have theirs. I don't know. Sometimes I think the mentor role is more harsh than the therapy role, I'll be quite honest with you, with many of these kids. You have a closer relationship. But the fact is, a sensitive, compassionate treatment is one that helps a person discover this for themselves, to come to this truth. And maybe then when they see it and they say it, maybe then I gently bring out the Rebbeinu Baha'i and go through it with them, but not till then. That's the treatment. And it starts with compassion. Thank you.